0: This is Bill Oberst, Jr. from Take This Lollipop and a Million Horror Movies. Don't be scared. You're listening to Then Is Now Podcast.
1: Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious.
0: Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, <laughs> it's scary.
2: What kind of a sick school is this? Oh.
3: things are afoot at the circle k you're
4: really gonna need a bigger boat surely you can't be serious i am serious and don't call me sure
1: you got spunk i hate spunk danger will robinson danger
3: oh are you?
0: How you doing back off man i'm a scientist don't make me angry you wouldn't like me when i'm angry say hello to my little friend I love the spell of a in the morning. What are you people, on dope?
5: Stop whining.
0: i got a crap on deck that you joke I don't
5: Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
2: Can I
0: do
4: that? I'll be back.
0: A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't up your nose
5: when you have
3: hold what? I'm sailing! I'm
0: sailing! You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry.
4: He's looking at you, kid.
0: We have got no food, we have got no jobs, our pets'
3: heads are falling
2: off! Go to the coast, we we'll get together, have a few laughs.
0: Hear
3: Elizabeth?
2: <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV.
5: I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11 exactly. One loud. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little loud
4: These go to 11. We're on a mission from God.
5: Hi, this is Rigor, and you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. While science fiction has never left our pop culture, There are many science fiction films, TV shows, and books from the past that have not been introduced to the younger generation. Our job here is to make sure that these things are not forgotten. One of these things that you should know about is a TV series from 1994 called Babylon 5, which ran for five seasons. The series follows the human military staff and alien diplomats stationed on a space station called Babylon 5, built in the aftermath of several major interspecies wars as a neutral ground for galactic diplomacy and trade. But what made it unique for its time was that it was a pre-planned five-year story arc that featured storylines which spanned multiple episodes and even seasons, affecting permanent changes to the series universe. One of the major stars of Babylon 5 is on the show today, and he's not just known for that. He's been an actor since the early 1970s and has been on several other notable shows and is still going strong with the TV presence today. So sit back and get ready to listen to a fantastic episode with a major TV star. Class is in session.
0: I have a bad feeling about this. How could
5: I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this?
0: Food fight! Hey, you in my
2: class? I am today.
4: I think you should consider transferring to Shaw class. Woo-hoo! Now,
5: now, very few students are severely injured in Shaw class. Bueller, when you were in school, Bueller, did you ever cut class?
4: Bueller, yeah, I guess I did, sure, most kids
0: cut classes.
1: Good, sign this, um, he's sick.
0: I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of
4: college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son.
5: You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have
0: recess all the time. Woo!
2: Go play and have fun now.
5: Okay, folks, I am so excited to have today's guest on the show. He's an actor whose career spans back to the early 1970s. He's been on Hawaii Five-0, Beretta, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, How the West Was Won, Touched by an Angel, NCIS, Heroes, Bring Them Back Alive. Kenny Rogers' Gambler series of TV movies, and more recently, Supergirl on the CW, and that's just to name a few. Some of his movie credits include Breakaway, Diplomatic Immunity, Cuffs with Christian Slater, and Contagion, but what really put him on the map for science fiction fans was his role as Alan Bradley, a.k.a. Tron, in the 1982 classic science fiction film of the same name, a role which he reprised for Tron Legacy in 2010. Not only was Tron a major hit for this man, but he was also the star of two wildly successful TV shows that are still popular to this day, Scarecrow and Mrs. King and Babylon 5, in which he played Captain John Sheridan. He's been a stage actor, a model, a novel writer, a member of the Board of Governors of the National Space Society, and a member of the National Board of Directors of the Screen Actors Guild's Hollywood Division. He's won several awards, including the Bravo Auto, the Golden Boots Award, the Western Heritage Awards Bronze Wrangler, and is a two-time winner of Sci-Fi Universe Magazine's Reader's Choice Award for Best Actor in a Genre TV Series for Babylon 5. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor and a privilege to welcome to the show the beloved star, Bruce Boxleitner.
0: There he is, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Roger. (laughs) It's so awesome to have you here. Well, and we now finally speak to each other. It's yes. amazing, all this uh, uh, texting and emailing and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's good to be on the show. Thank you for having me.
5: Awesome, awesome. So before we truly get into it, I just wanted to mention that, you know, not only you were, you were a fixture on TV for me growing up, and I got to mm-hmm. tell you, there was this one time where I got into an mm-hmm. argument with this kid on the playground because he insisted that you were Howie on The Fall Guy, which was played by Douglas Barr. <laughs> <laughs> I had to set him straight. And tell him no. Well, no, he's I'm the glad you set him straight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. But I, I remembered. Uh, it, well, he wasn't far wrong for mistaking me because um, many people did over the years. I believe me in a few um, uh, cocktail lounges and so on. I we I catched a lot of drinks uh, in the name of Doug Barr. Uh, <laughs> they used to think. They used to think I was. Uh, I would say, Hey, aren't you that guy on the fall guy with Lee Majors? I said, I'm too weary to argue with the man or to say, uh, No, I'm not. And then go, No, I never saw it. Um, I would just say, Yeah, that's me. So years later, um, somehow I got on a phone call. I was on a phone or somebody was talking to Doug Barr, you know, because he's been a very active uh, television director. I, I haven't heard right. from him quite a few years, but this was years ago. And I said, I've got to talk to Doug. And they gave me the phone. And I said, Doug, this is Bruce Boxleitner." He says, you know how many drinks I've gotten off of you, Lightner? <laughs> he had the same thing. So That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's one of those things. People don't really, you know, the average television watcher, and I think, sure, I'm sure at any time, you know, they see somebody that's very similar. Um, and they automatically think it's you if they see you in life, you know and uh but I have in and, and it's very you know it's flattering i mean Doug was flattered by it too i mean he yeah. yeah that's me so um but he did the same thing as i did <laughs> that's that's funny i i thought it was just me and this yeah. kid <laughs> yeah no well, probably the youngest version I ever heard of this story is <laughs> mostly old barflies. But, <laughs> you know. But, uh, That's hilarious. Well, I'm glad you set him straight, Roger. I did. So, I did. I'm like, he's the yeah, scarecrow.
5: Yeah. He's the bring him back alive guy. Come on, man. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. What's with that? So Get your education, kid. Right. <laughs> yes, sir.
5: <laughs> so um, let's talk about your early life. You know, where are you from and, and what led you into
0: acting? Well, way back when, uh, I was born in 1950 in a, a town called Elgin, Illinois. It was really put on the map, northern, northern Illinois, um, because they made Elgin watches, which was a very, very popular brand for big watch factory. Right. And anyway, I was only born in the hospital there. There There's many people from Elgin want to claim me as a favorite son. I said, well, it was the only hospital in the area because I was raised in a a small town called Crystal Lake, Illinois, which um, is now a very large town. And all of that has been engulfed by the suburban spread of Chicago, you know, the north. But at that time, they were very distinct uh, small towns or towns. And um, I lived there uh until i was 10 years old and then we my dad started doing better and we moved in closer to chicago to a place called mount prospect illinois and that's where i uh about 10 years old 10 11 years old and went from there junior a high, junior high school to um you know high school and then i left for the the big city of chicago where uh after that i went to uh i had fallen in love with uh, plays. I mean, I was, in the, I was active in sports, but I never quite succeeded. I remember failing to get on the b- basketball team. And I think a day later, I was pretty depressed about that. And uh, I wasn't big on school anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I had to, obviously. And I wandered into the uh, tryouts for the fall play. And it was open uh, to, and I had just become a sophomore, freshman, you weren't allowed to attend that you had to be maybe crew or something like that, but you could not be on the stage. Uh, You know, just that's the way it was. So anyway, I wandered into this audition and, um, basically I didn't know what I was doing, but I've always been a movie and television fan. I mean, voraciously. So this whole thing about acting was intriguing to me. I always had a very active imagination as a, as a boy. And, um, So uh, I, you know, I just, I don't know, just something drew me to that room where they were holding the auditions and I caught the eye of a wonderful English teacher who also was the head of the drama guild and a woman that um, I have always paid homage to for the rest of my life is saying this was, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be where I was and right. uh, where i became what i became because she saw something in me and she cast me and it was a agatha christie's um ten little indians and then there were none one of her famous mysteries wow and uh, she cast me as the young leading man and <laughs> i had no idea what to do with that but um <laughs> but as that went on i i do remember that uh, when I saved the heroine at the end of the play and uh, you know, dispatched the bad guy, uh, found him out and dispatched him um, and the applause that happened. And uh, there I was on stage in my high school theater and I was totally bitten. And I thought, this is where I, this is where I live. This is what I want to do, but I don't, wouldn't know how to go about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
5: it's uh, how did you get to Broadway? Because I, I saw a couple of um, r- newspaper reviews, which were which were all positive, and you were in status. Oh, quo there status. were some negatives, believe oh, me. Oh, really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's Broadway. Yeah, you know? that was the bit. That was the biggest of the big time. I mean, you you've got to have a thick hide because as much as anybody likes you, there's going to be the one that writes about you and hate you. Right. Or right. Doesn't like what you did. And I, I, I went. I went. To, well. The, Really short. I went to drama school because of Mrs. Lukowitz, this teacher that she had influence. She had sent a couple of students in her past on to drama school or interview for drama school. Interviews for drama school. Now this was nineteen. I was getting out of high school in nineteen sixty-eight. I was not a very good student, I, I will admit, and I barely got out of high school. <laughs> but I did do. Uh, uh, I met with them. I auditioned for them. I had to memorize, I even, i have forgotten because I was so, so stage-risk in fear. I was just unconscious almost. Um, But anyway, uh, times were very turbulent then. We were in the middle of riots and the burning and the the civil rights marches. And then obviously the bigger, even bigger than that was a war that was very unpopular. Right. And it was really heating up then. I was walking out right when the Tet Offensive happened in Vietnam. Wow. And uh, they were calling up young men like we had something that your generation has never had to know was a thing called the draft. And uh, at 18, you went down to the uh, city hall and you put your name in with the draft board. It was the law. And then it was by pure chance. So. The reason I bring all that up is that uh, my parents were very worried about what I was picking. I I didn't do well in high school. I was average, okay, but I found that it was something in my heart and in my mind that I felt that I was going to. I thought I would be good at. I just didn't know how to go about it. My young parents, bless them, I still have them. Um, they were scared. We had no theater experience in our family, and we had nobody to refer to. Or, you know, you just heard the things. Oh my God, if you become an actor, you'll starve to death. How are you going to make a living? You know, <laughs> right. these type of things. All the bad um, stories that have been made up over the years. Anyway, you're willing to do that if you love something so much. And it's you've got to do it. So you're willing to go through whatever you have to do. Anyway, I was I worked my way into the, um, the Goodman School of Drama in uh, Chicago. It's a very prestigious drama school. It was also a repertory theater. So it had a big stage at a student part of the. uh, It was part of the Art Institute of Chicago, big arts complex on Michigan Avenue. It's no longer there now. It's down on Dearborn Street in the center town, but it's more just a professional theater. This was a very prestigious school, and uh, it was basically to teach you know classics and theater and, and so on. So I did everything. I was exposed to everything from Shakespeare to you know, to um, Arthur Miller, to all the great playwrights and who was ever current. And, um, and we studied and we did scene studies and we, did, uh, we learned uh, ballet and dance just so that you were in touch with your body and movement that an actor needs to be and uh, voice and speech and all the things. And I also worked backstage crew to make uh, extra money as I was a kid. Nice. And, um, but it was my first big adventure to leave, leaving home. Um, you know, it was a great experience, but that's how I got, uh, I did two years, three years there. And, uh, to get to Broadway was another interesting story. There was a very big hit place, Chicago, at least then I'm not so sure now, but I'm not, I, I don't, I haven't lived there in, you know, 50 years or more. Wow. Um, so, I mean, uh, it was a big theater town. It was always called second city. Right, and compared to New York, who always likes to boast they're the number one. You know, it's Broadway and off Broadway. Well, Chicago brought gave us James uh, John Belushi and all those famous comedians from
3: yep. from a group
0: called Second City, right. a comedic group. And uh, uh, but anyway, we had a, a, a thriving, and especially in the sixties, late sixties, you know, it was just a magical place, great theater. Uh, we got everything, all the road shows and uh, national tours from New York. A lot of our, um, you know, musicals like Hair and all those uh, great Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, mm-hmm. my God, they were, saw it all. So it was a great creative time, a violent time. It was yeah. like incredibly to be 18 years old. Um waiting to be drafted if, if that, that ever happened and also be running around the streets of Chicago with all the crap that was going on at the democratic convention and all the, uh, the students for a democratic society, bombing everybody and, uh, big demonstrations and then street theater. I actually did street theater as well wow. with a group that out of uh, them. So it was an exciting time, vibrant time. And of course the arts respond to all that. Right. So, um, intense mean, state happened we shut down the theater school you know we were oh my gosh anyway it was <laughs> all so intense I look back on it and that was wow. kind of funny but um we were very intense and so all of that was going on and um that's how i, I auditioned for a understudy role a friend of mine, my roommate in fact Johnny hogan um there's a bunch of us guys had a had a place up on the north side of uh, Uh, Lakeshore Drive, an old uh, brownstone that we dominated and it was party central, by the way. But um, (laughs) but anyway, uh, I auditioned for this understudy role at a prominent theater in Chicago on the north side, a big dinner theater, but it was known to debut uh, up-and-coming Broadway plays and stuff like that. It was a great place for big playwrights to try out their new material. And it was uh, uh, the place to go for the latest in theater. And I auditioned. There was a play up there. It was called Status Quo Vadis. Yes. Um, by uh, Donald. Oh, my gosh. I've forgotten his last name. Dryer Dryer. Donald Driver. I, Donald Driver. Yes. And he had done a thing called uh, Your Own Thing. It was a musical, a hip musical of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And okay. uh, doing your own thing, you know. Yep. Uh, so, 60s. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I auditioned for this. Uh, Johnny said, Man, you you look just like the guy that's the star of this Status Quo Vadis. It's a great play because he'd already done a play um, that premiered there. And um said, Box, go up there and go and, and, uptown and, and uh, get in on an audition. So strangely enough, I did. I was doing children's. I was doing children's theater. Goodman had a, a prestigious children's theater company. We put on these huge, epic things, Robin Hood and all kinds of wow. huge, expensive productions, for, especially for the inner city kids who had never, don't even own televisions and things. They had no sense of, sense of it. So it was always a wild audience on the weekends. Anyway, long story short, I go up to audition for *Status Quo Vadas*, and I get a call back, and I'm shocked. And so I I went back and did it and uh, auditioned for the head of the theater, Um, not just the casting people. And uh, in two weeks, I was um, understudying this other actor. And I know I was giving him kind of he had no idea what was coming. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, he. uh, he was let go. He had some problems. He had caused some trouble, and uh, oh, wow. the theater had let him go. And I stepped in just as they were taking this play. Um, they were leaving the Ivanhoe Theater, and we were going to the Arena Stage in Washington D.C. Wow! Uh, wow! So that's where I started it as the lead. Huh. And it was a huge ensemble, a comedy, a sort of drama, dramedy yep. type of thing. It's very funny and witty, and um, I played this leather jacketed uh, punk from the streets who uh, who wrote poetry and worked in a factory all day long so um and his steady climb through the various ladies he met and he tried to climb up the ladder of society, okay probably seems pretty uh, dim now, but at that time it was it was how it was staged and presented too. It was a terrific show and a, a terrific showpiece for me and um And that's how eventually we did that for eight weeks there. And then we took it back to Chicago. And then suddenly the backers there wanted to take it to Broadway. And uh, we did out-of-town tryouts in Wilmington, Delaware. And then we went to the Great White Way, man. And it was something else. You know, we had uh, two weeks of previews and uh, invitation only for agents and... uh, news people you know um, journalists theatrical journalists and then we had opening night and i'd been with this play for most of it probably a good year and opening night was our closing night
3: oh wow (laughs)
0: we were bombed we were bombed by um oh what's his name he was the biggest critic at the time and at that time the critics held such sway over the the futures or des- destinies of Broadway shows. Right.
2: But, oh, my God. Was not Rex name? Reed, was not
0: it? To... No, in fact. But it was Rex Reed who read those reviews to my family and all of our cast at Sardi's. That's what you did. That was tradition. At midnight when the paper came out. And he read John Simon's review, and he read, uh, oh, gosh, I forgot the other guy. Anyway, the, the bigger guy. He was a very famous agent. A very, mm. very famous theater uh writer and uh he panned us basically
5: Ah, oh, that's too bad
0: now the whole thing came from and then i uh, i was just in a state of shock because all these old broadway hands had told me all during that whole process leading up to that kid don't sign don't sign the fir- first contract they offer you you hold out you get a year contract blah blah blah. you're going to be big you're going to be a big star destined to be big. i remember our out-of-town tryouts uh, saying um this play is destined to be a classic. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what the New York Times said, okay? <laughs> so anyway, what was I to do? Here I was. I just turned 21. And um, I was in New York. I was out in the street again. But the lucky thing is I had got an agent, had seen me with a big agency in uh, New York at the time during the uh During the previews, okay, and um, everybody said, "Don't take the first offer that comes to you." Remember, all these old hands and all these people, and I had this one phone call. Somebody had left a number. Call me. (laughs) It was at a place called IFA, International Famous Agency, which is now ICM. Okay, it was um, a merger thing happened there, but uh, that's it's. It's original thing, and uh, that's what happened. I met this agent. He wanted to handle me, and uh, I did auditions all up and down. I was in a state of shock. And the funny thing is, Roger, I walked by the Brooks Atkinson Theater so many times. No show replaced us. They didn't have any booking for a while, so they still had uh, my name up in the marquee, <laughs> and <laughs> wow. they still had big pictures. Plastered all over, you know, outside the front of the theater of the play for, for pictures from the play, and there I was. And I used to walk by that and just almost cry, you know. I mean, it was crazy because oh, here I was, you know, uh, wearing out shoe leather going from uh, one audition to another. But I lived there probably uh, another year, and then um, I got an offer to do. I, I did some summer stock in uh, Ohio and that kind of thing, and started to really. Gain some more and more experiences in the theater, which I think is so important. But uh, anyway, that was me. And then I got back to New York and uh, somebody suggested, what about the West Coast? What do you think? Because I wasn't really a song and dance man either. You know, you kind of, New York, you have to be kind of a triple threat. Right, right. Musicals and all the things, you know. And, you know, I said, you know, deep in my heart, that's what I always wanted to be. I always wanted to be on television. Okay, yeah. She, as she said to me, one of the agents there, she said, look, if you can get out to the West Coast and get out to Los Angeles, look up this man, and a number. She gave me a number, a couple of numbers to, to look up. And so I held on to those things. And lo and behold, back in Chicago, they want to do a revival of status quo vadis again. And I didn't want to. It was such a hurtful experience dying in New York with it, right. embarrassment. But then I thought about it and I said, OK, I'll do it. I'll come back, and but I want a one-way ticket to Los Angeles um, in my contract. And I did it for about eight weeks. I went back to Chicago. It was revived. Chicagoans loved that play. It was standing room only. We had mm. great re- return reviews despite the Broadway debacle. And I, I called up some friends that had been living out in the West Coast, other actors, And they said, yeah, come on, you can sleep on my couch for a while You get yourself started. So I made my money in that uh, um, status quo vadis uh, redo and um, headed west, young man. Like Horace Greeley said, (laughs) go west, young man, find your fame and fortune. So I did. And that's just how I got out to L.A. There you go. That's the whole saga. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whew.
5: Nice.
0: That's basically that's basically it. I mean it was just um I was a very lucky young man. Oh, absolutely. I happened to be in some places at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And yeah. and did it. And um from then on I started uh, I, I met with this guy John Crosby and uh, eventually he sent me out on things. I know I used to pester him every Friday. I'd go to IFA and sit in it and his uh, in his outer office and be sitting there all day till the end of work day and go, so what have you done for me today? Nice. Uh, this week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to, and, uh, you have to have, you know, balls. I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. but that's what it is. No, that's true. You have to have a great deal of courage and willing to push yourself to the front of the line. And it's an aggressive thing, but, um, that's how you make it. Right. And, uh, even now, I still have to. At 70 years old, I have to, uh, I've got to work at it, you know. I've got yeah. to really push it because that's another hole. It's the other end of that spectrum.
5: Right, right.
0: And You're young starting out, and then you're older trying to stay with it. Yeah. So, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's an amazing business, and I, I have no regrets about that.
5: And in your early times on television, so you got this mm-hmm. chance to work with people like Fred McMurray and Barry Bostwick and Robert Culp. Oh, and God. Chuck oh, my God. Uh, I
0: worked with uh, Robert Blake. I worked with uh, Jack Lord. I did yep. two, I think, two Hawaii Five O's in um, Hawaii. And, um, uh, oh, my God, all the hit I did Gunsmoke uh, yep. with uh, Festus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i love to work with him and that later got me to how the west was one. it was that same company but um yeah mary tyler moore yeah i mean uh i'm i'm talking ancient history there to possibly <laughs> your 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 listeners
3: well i was gonna but, say uh, we just re- you know how re-
0: big she was because you know we're in the me too days now yeah, yeah well she she started that oh yeah she was very instrumental in breaking in she and marlo thomas and um Valerie Harper and uh, actresses of that, ilk, especially through, you know, Lucy had done it years earlier. Right. Lucille Ball with comedic women. But Mary Tyler Moore, my wife here watches those things religiously. Still the reruns of those oh, yeah. so shows because it was portraying a young uh, a woman in, the uh, you know, in a man's world, you yep. know, the news business and holding her own and her life and all her travails. And I did an episode of that. That was my first job in Hollywood. And it got me my Screen Actors Guild card. It was my entire paycheck went to it. Wow. But it was worth it because then I could go further. I did, uh, I think I did Gunsmoke after that. And I did the very last episode shot of a series that had uh, been on television for 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and my associations with that. Would have end up taking me even further, but that's when I went off and did all these other. I did all these uh, episodic shows, Police Woman with Angie yep. Dickinson. Yep. I tried to kill her under the Santa Monica Bridge, <laughs> and was shot for my uh, for my <laughs> troubles, and killed at the last minute yep. by this other cop that got me. But uh, I mean, all those kind of people, you know. I I I started hitting around doing those. Um, uh, get little guest art parts. And then they started to get bigger, you know, it's just, you had to kind of work your way around. I I, I love to tell the story that at universal, I auditioned for a thing, uh, a show that would eventually become called welcome back, Cotter. Oh yeah. And a young guy named Travolta (laughs) jumped out of that show into stardom. Wow. At John Travolta and uh, people forget what a huge, impact john was but on uh, the casting agents notes um i went in for the same role of vinnie barbarino wow i didn't know that well i look too much out of a cornfield in illinois than the streets (laughs) of new york okay even though i played this hood in in on broadway but um out here, it's what you look like it has a lot to do with it, you know. Right. And right. Uh, I look like a big corn-fed kid from the Midwest, <laughs> and uh, obviously John was from, you know, Brooklyn and whatever. Right. Yeah. So um, so, uh, <laughs> but I'm on one side are the notes on him, and on the other side of that paper, uh, Reuben Cannon was the uh, was the uh, um, the producer uh, casting agent. Oh, the casting and agent. Uh, he had notes on both of us. I I wish I had that paper. Maybe Toronto, Travolta. I don't know, but it was interesting because that's how close I got. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you know, it was those type of things. Yeah, um, my big break was uh, was really on uh, um, MGM's uh, "How the West Was Won." ABC, right? And, and wasn't James uh, Arness one of your idols? He was. Well, all. all all of us our age we all knew who Marshall Matt Dillon was grew up with him 20 years on television it was probably the mainstay in your your viewing nights it was one of them it was an adult western and um, you know because there were like 30 40 westerns on television at the time TV series and uh, that was one of the big ones and I had no idea and of course I was you know I loved him I mean and um, you know I I didn't on one of the gunsmoke that I did the last one being shot of all those years. Um, Jim wasn't in that episode or he was early on and he'd already left. Uh-huh. But, um, eventually I would meet him again in the pilot of, uh, I think called the McCayans which was the pilot for the, uh, uh, miniseries format. By that time, television had changed after we came on after roots, which was the groundbreaking miniseries that changed television. Right. Um, for the next decade at yep. last, maybe more um but uh, we we followed it and uh, our opening night we had 50 share that means we had 50 we had half the viewing population of the United States you don't get numbers like that anymore no they don't even look at those type of ratings anymore that means all those televisions were watching right Cause that's how big Arnest was he was a massive presence six foot seven of him yeah uh, he was a massive <laughs> presence in television in the television landscape everyone knew who he was yeah and here he had a whole different character a big uh, western character, but he had a very different character. he was this big brawling rowdy mountain man dressed in buckskins and long flowing hair and mustache and everything and um he uh and i you can back it up on he if you look at the television academy, uh, not long before he passed away, uh, you know, he did interviews talking about the many years of Gunsmoke and then leading into how did his, How the West Was going to come about. And he actually told my story. He told two stories of casting of Burt Reynolds back in the Gunsmoke days. Wow. And and then um, I'm very proud to say he talked about me being cast. And um, he had the final say in How the West Was Won. And he stuck by me. He saw my screen test he wasn't able to perform in the screen test with me, but there was like 20 some guys, but, um, and I had to do it twice because of some the lighting they didn't like in it. And they didn't think it favored me very much or something. I don't know, whatever it was, I probably stunk and they just never <laughs> had the courage to tell me that, but, uh, <laughs> they stuck with me and Arnest liked me. And he said, no, I think, uh, they were, ABC was pushing, the studio was pushing, um, another guy. They really wanted him to be in the prime time. And uh, stuck with me and I'll be forever thankful. Nice. They did. And uh, it was a great association. I did uh, How the West was one. I did the last Gunsmoke TV movie with him. And we also did a remake of the Western uh, Red River. Red River, yeah. With Ray Walsh. We had a long association and uh, we loved I loved him. He was quite a mentor to me Um, just by and he would like I always say he would be so embarrassed he he was a very shy man uh, outgoing in one way but also very private and um and he would probably balk at that but i I, a mentor is somebody that helps guide you and you know um and he had no idea that he was guiding me and i was learning a lot by watching and being with him and performing with him because he knew what it was like unlike anybody else i'd ever met to be the star of a television series. Wow. And you're the number one on the call sheet. Yeah. And how you deport yourself is how this will go on, how, how the day will go, you know, and television is all about getting those days in because you had a time frame. you know, and you've got to do so many pages a day and things like that. And so when you set a good example and you're a professional, um, And he was, because he got to work over 20 years. Imagine all the great guest stars from Betty Davis to, oh my God, everybody that came out from New York, Robert Redford was, I mean, he worked with everybody who was just starting out until some of the greats that were doing their twilight years, you know? Yeah. And um, he had, you know, John Wayne had convinced him to do that role. He was under contract to Wayne uh, back in the day, and they even had him, introduce him in the very first episode of Gunsmoke. he did an introduction
5: oh wow
3: on okay.
0: camera yeah you can look that up it's it's cool
5: yeah
0: as a, i is a young man i know you're all gonna like his name is jim arness and blah 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 so anyway that was a huge endorsement back That's there cool. in the 50s the star wayne was the biggest movie star in the world at that time oh yeah and so uh he didn't want to do this thing called television, so <laughs> but and neither did Jim because Jim wanted Jim was part of his company and he wanted to be a, a movie star and he'd been in a lot of films, I mean yeah. already. But um he uh but Wayne convinced him that this new medium was something he could, you know, and go far in and he did. Nice. I think it still holds the record. Gunsmoke uh I think it was some of Dick maybe Dick Wolf's, one of his Law and Orders but with predominantly the same cast I don't think there's another show that's beat it on an hour long drama right the same cast I think, seasons? what
5: even Bonanza was only like 15 years
0: yeah yeah some so. came close but never quite got there yeah and uh, Law and Order is I think there but they've had numerous casts over the many years right right and um I mean, totally different ones, you know. And then some stayed with it. Uh, Great uh, series. but um, And we don't really have that today, Roger. No, we we don't. don't. Uh, We get 10-episode seasons. Yeah. Those were back in their day. They were doing 36 episodes a year. uh, It changed. But in my year, my time in Hollywood, you did 22 a season. Right. That was 22 on the air. And you're... uh, Objective was to do 100 episodes, Yeah. Uh, especially if you did 100 episodes and then you sold into syndication, which doesn't exist anymore. Right, yeah. So
5: So I just wanted to jump ahead just a
0: little bit here. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm talking maybe too much.
5: No, no, No. please. I have have so many other questions from from those days, but I'll save them for another time. Um, No, no, no. We can go. Okay. Well, no, I did want to mention go. my um my wife wanted me to tell you because we watched we re we rewatched that Mary Tyler Moore episode that you were in, and she just wanted me to tell you that she said you had great hair it, and she loved it.
0: <laughs> that was the day of the big hair, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had long hair, looked like a surfer boy. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was those days. That really pigeonholes you the early seventies because yep. that was like nineteen 1970- seventy or five so yeah i came out to la in 73 yeah and so i was very listen i know many people my contemporaries that you know it took years for them to finally get a job i was relative I mean, that's why i'm saying i was a very lucky young man yeah came in at the right time and i you know um, you know so uh, luck has a great deal to do with it but you got to be able to back it up oh you know? absolutely yeah if they call on you you you've got to be able to back it up and not everything was greatly successful. And I think I stunk in most of my early stuff because I was getting used to this, uh, especially that gun smoke, strangely enough. I, um, I was way over the top. Oh my God. I don't want anybody to, I shouldn't even talk about it. I'll go look it up. But it was, it was, it was, I was way over the top. I was learning about this, that black eye that looks at you from those tripods, you know, I yeah, mean, yeah. that camera learning the camera. And that's where Ness was greatly helpful to me. That's well, amazing. It's all about that camera. Oh, absolutely. You may be playing with everybody, but you got to be playing to that. Yeah. And um, and it's got to be brought down. Yeah. And I still work on it to this day, trying to be as minimalist as possible. Right. And it's all in the eyes, especially you know when you get those tight close-ups and things like that.
5: And that's something that, that you don't when, get out of theater. Because the theater, you're so far away. you've got to hit the, you've
0: got to hit the hundredth row, you know, the 50th row or whatever. You've got a huge house and balconies and everything. So it's a little larger. And that's where my formative experience came from, but acting is acting and you just have to adapt to whatever the medium, you know, right. It's still the same process so far as creating character and learning your lines and blocking and, you know, camera blocking is different though. You know, you've got to, Always be aware of the camera, and uh, Mary Tyler Moore was a three-camera show. That was comedy, right? And so it was live. And we had an audience. Obviously, they could they would edit and start over again if you needed to. Somebody flubbed a line or something like that. Yeah. But um, that was a another experience. The Mary Tyler Moore show. Cause Ed Asner and uh, you know uh, Ted, Ted White. Oh my God. Yeah. He brought. He introduces me as you noticed in that thing. He went, Well, look who I found in the mailroom. You know, <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> And uh, real quick real on that is I'll never forget. I'm standing there and waiting for this little red light. He's and I are standing there. And he is joking with me and kidding with me. And every time I'm damn near peeing myself. I'm (laughs) laughing so hard. And then I've just got to come in with a big old, you know, you know what, eating grin. Yeah, (laughs) you can say it. And that was a genuine look because this man had me in hysterics. That's He'd be awesome. mumbling under his breath, you know, like, and what a comedic genius! <laughs> he really was. Oh what God. an exciting experience. I remember Har- Valerie Harper, who played Rhoda, yep. who would later have her own series yep. uh, on that character, uh, taking me aside and wanting to know all about me. How are you know How are you getting along? How long have you been out here? And you know, just welcome to the show. These people were so wonderful. And Mary Tyler Moore herself was so gracious. Nice. And, um, Gavin McLeod, how was he? a great, great experience. Gavin McLeod, wonderful. Yeah. Murray's daughter. Oh, that's you know, right. Murray's daughter, who's yep. got this summer job, and no one has the heart to tell her yeah. that she's doing a terrible job. <laughs> she's ruined Lou's coffee and everything, you know, all <laughs> that kind of stuff. Anyway, great stuff. And it was, and it was over there at CBS in the Valley uh, in Studio City, and it was just magic, because I lived like two blocks from the studio an apartment building and um, it was a wonderful time uh, you know I look back on that very fondly that's great but uh, then you know everything went on after all that after how the West was won, and I did East of Eden and all these other uh, miniseries and uh, my sci-fi world was coming yep yep <laughs> There
1: for a spying, tingling, nerve shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster, monster Kid, Radio. Kid Radio! Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror and King Kong and don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio.
4: Greetings. This is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sin somniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white, low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken-down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, driving snack bar ads, and worst? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo, and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely Real Seven Girls for a late night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again.
5: I mean, you had a jam-packed four years starting in 1980 because you did the the Baltimore Bullet with James Coburn and mm-hmm. Omar Sharif. Then yeah. you were in Kenny yeah. Rogers' Gambler,
0: the Gambler. Yeah. yeah, I played two two guys named Billy. Oh, really? In both of them. Oh, that's I mean, great. I was I was Billy. Uh, what was my name? Billy something or Billy Joe something. And uh, with James Coburn, now it was a low-budget movie. I was thrilled with James Coburn because he was our man Flint. Yeah. in the movies, and he was yep. also in every great Western I ever loved. Oh, yeah. And um, he was in The Magnificent Seven. He was in The Great Escape. He was in all these incredible genre movies. Yeah. And uh, he'd been in Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dynamite, mm-hmm. Duck You Sucker, whichever title you want to use. And uh, so uh, it was. He, he was just larger than life to me as well. I seem to have sidekicked from James Arness, another gray-haired guy, <laughs> big giant, to, the, to to James Coburn, another silver-haired giant. Right. To Kenny Rogers, another right. <laughs> white haired guy. So I was the sidekick, and now I'm the guy, and I could play every one of their biographies because I've got the white hair now. So I still <laughs> have a head of hair. So, uh, But anyway, uh, James was great, and uh, it was a low-budget film. I uh, never got much play, but I worked with two giants, as far as I'm concerned. Omar Sharif, who was like this oh, yeah. legend from Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And Dr. Funny and Robert, Girl, and all these great movies, yeah. and um, so anyway, a great experience around them. And then uh, Kenny, who became a, 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 a just a really great friend, and uh, we did. I probably did more uh, hour per hour. I did four of those, and they were all two-hour movies, uh, from the first gambler to the second gambler. Yeah, which, they were all two-nighters, and two hours each. Right. So that was a lot of film time. You know. Oh yeah, and we uh, pretty much—I uh, had a great time with him, and and. Uh, you said and you
5: he you he never saw a guy pressure. who enjoyed his success so much as Kenny Rogers. Yes,
0: yes. I mean, here was a guy that um, uh, was uh, when I did Gunsmoke. I worked with his partner from a group, a very famous recording group uh, that was uh, Kenny Rogers in the First Edition. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was. Uh, it was a very psychedelic rock group, right. strangely enough. And uh, Kenny had been in every musical style there was. He told me he started up as a, uh, bass, a stand-up bass player in a jazz quartet. Uh, wow. And um, that was one of Sinatra's favorite groups. Where they would go after night after and... and, uh, and uh, Vegas they'd go to this after hours the Rat Pack would go to this after hour this place and these guys would. they'd be playing and they'd all go to see them now wow. think about it you know all the you know Sammy Davis and Bishop, all of Dean the whole Martin. Rat yeah. Pack bunch yeah Dean Martin they were all there at night and they'd work till they'd all uh, leave the place midday mid-morning Wow. you know and go sleep off well for their shows the next night wow. so um no, Kenny was a great, larger-than-life character, and um, he enjoyed it. Uh, his success—I say that because I, I got to know him over the years—and um, uh, he he bought and sold homes. He, he he had so many hobbies, and his photography hobby. He did two great photographic coffee coffee table books. Um, just uh, one was called "Just Some of My Friends," and I was between Michael Jackson and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, wonderful Horrell type uh, photos that he made. Wow. And these were people that he knew, you know? Yeah. From president to uh, ex-presidents to uh, people of all walks of the recording world and the movie and television world. And um, But, uh, you know, America loved him. The world loved him. Oh, yeah. He, that kind of quality that you still could hum his songs and he said, I may have not been the greatest voice in the world, but I knew how to phrase a lyric. Nice. You know? Yeah. And that's so true. Yeah. It's so true. You know? Because essentially, he was a musical storyteller. Oh, yeah. You know? And he knew how to phrase it. Yeah. And uh, and so, uh, anyway, I just love the man, and uh, he was a, a terrific influence on me as well. Because you see that how you see someone who were making tremendous when we did the original gambler where I was Billy Montana his goofball sidekick. Like I was with James Coburn. um, Only I was a wannabe gambler, card player, card sharp. Right. And, uh, and I keep goofing up everything and getting in trouble and he'd have to bail me out. (laughs) But uh, Kenny, I remember we were in old Tucson, Arizona, uh, outside the train and we were taking pictures. And um, I think he was going to be on the front of time magazine. He had scored bigger than any recording artist, other than maybe the Beatles prior to that, in such a record amount of time. Because, and I think "Power to the County" came out that week while we were doing that, okay. and it went straight to number one. Yeah, and another story song, but every they were very simple. Yeah, and uh, you know he didn't consider. I don't think he considered himself a country player. He just was a boy from the projects of Houston, raised right. in poverty, and he made it big. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I um, still have. Par, I, uh, yeah.
5: I was going to say, I still have his um, A Track from when I was a kid that has, like, I think it was his greatest hits. Go. I'll throw it in every once yep, in a while. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and certainly, The Gambler's in there. So yep. uh, I went out uh, hiking the other day and I had my little earplugs in and my phone and I turned on. And the first song that came on was that. And I went, Yay, this is a good day. Nice. to The Gambler, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because I kind of think it is my theme song, too, in a way. Yeah, it's a gamble, you know. Yeah, that's true. the great lesson of that song in its simplistic way. It's life is a gamble. Yeah, you, you know, you got to know these certain things to survive it. So um,
5: it's speaking anyway, of gambles,
0: and that. Oh, yeah. sorry
5: you go ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, no, you're you're the host here. <laughs> all right. Well, I was going to say I just ramble on, and you gotta <laughs> gotta rein me in, Roger. <laughs> well,
5: I was going to say, speaking of gambles, when you got the script for <laughs> Tron, which was shortly after that, what was going through your mind? Did you think it was it was going to work again? That was probably a
0: gamble, right? Well, I always want to say I think uh, what was the, the the most exciting part about doing the film Tron was that it was certain, First of all, I was a kid raised on Disney. And to work at Disney Studios was huge. Oh, okay. And um, to work with Jeff Bridges, who was a one of those contemporaries that I always looked to see what he was doing. I always enjoyed what he did. You know, you have peers. Yeah. You know, and I was not a... I didn't feel worthy as a peer, but I remember him back in the, the last picture show and uh, Bad Company and all these yep. movies that I used to go see him in the movies. So the idea that he was involved, I was, oh my God, yes, I want to we were doing a pioneering thing and it became more and more evident as we were doing it, that, well, this could just fail. All pioneers can fail. Right. All pioneers do fail at one time or another, you know, and this was a pioneering effort to try to expand on a, an animation and, um, We had the computer coming in as this also. It's such a timepiece now when you look at it. Yeah, I just rewatched it. It captures a certain period. Yeah. You know? I have no idea what DOS means, but my wife tells me that was a computer system.
5: <laughs> yeah. And,
0: how, how, how and here I am, Alan Bradley, computer wizard. <laughs> <You Right. know? laughs> well, that's
5: why it's called acting. Oh, you know?
0: <laughs> I'm talking to you on my landline, for Christ's <laughs> sake. You know? hey, anyway. I was uh,
5: actually very glad when you said that because I knew the signal would be
0: perfect. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, you know, anyway, but it was, I felt it was exciting. It was different. Yeah. Remember, I was doing a, I was doing a, I was playing young Wyatt Earp out in Arizona as well oh, yeah. and I, when I read the script. And when I got back to Hollywood, I, I met with him. And at first I told my agent, I don't I don't want to do it. I don't understand it. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> out of that, whatever the hell they're talking about, you know. Yeah. I was used to wiping uh, horse crap off my boot and <laughs> walking with spurs on and a six gun. But, um, I don't know how I'm going to be in these. Uh, I guess they're tights and a helmet and, you know, anyway, but it did appeal to me. It did. I just was fighting it because right, it right, scared right. the devil out of me. Yeah. Okay. That's how I react. Well, then I don't want to do it. You know? Well, he said, you come here, they want to meet with you. And after the movie was over, I went back to Hollywood and, uh, and uh, I met with him. Now, where that script is, I love to tell the story that I was sitting on my on this little buckskin horse that I was riding in the movie, um, uh, which was called "I Married Wyatt Earp." It was for NBC, Yeah. starring her debut, um, Maria. Uh, what's her name? Marie Maria Osmond. Osmond. Yep, yeah. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Anyway, it was good, and it was it really did well. Um, uh, but. Because she was so popular at that time. So, and oh, yeah. Singing stars were doing television and movies. That's, you know, Elvis created that stuff. Right. So, anyway, um, I looked and read this script. I got very frustrated, and they were calling everybody get ready. We're going to do this shot now. And so I shoved that script inside of the saddlebag on that horse and uh, forgot completely about it. Oh. Some wrangler somewhere had a first edition, first draft oh, of the man. Disney movie Tron which there were people, collectors now would pay a lot of money for. Wow. We probably went out and he probably opened it up and said, what the hell is this? <laughs> spit some tobacco on it and threw it away. You know, right. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, Wranglers are pretty salty characters. Oh, but, um, yeah, I didn't think anything of it. Then I went, I came back to Hollywood and um, I went and met Steven Lisberger and uh, Don what was his last name. Uh, his partner oh, in that uh, co-producer, um, Don uh, Donald uh,
5: Kushner. Kushner,
0: yeah. Uh, see, <laughs> this is well I have some memory left. Anyway, um, and I met with them, and they sort of interviewed me, and then he showed me some cells that they had done, and I got an idea of it because I remember auditioning for Star Wars, and didn't get it. I was in there in cowboy boots and jeans, and they I don't know, like that. Uh, that put them off or something. I don't know. But I was about six foot two and a three in those. And uh, that was too too large for Luke Skywalker. Oh wow! Anyway, um, I looked at that and I said, well, it's not Star Wars. I'm thinking to myself, it's not Star Wars, but it looks kind of space like, doesn't it? So it's inside a computer video game. Yep. Okay. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool. And uh, I got into it in my head. And I said, yep, I don't want to do this. And um, so I'm so glad I did. And how difficult was it to make that movie with all the effects? Well, because we didn't see any of the effects. It wasn't, it was difficult in imagining it. And thank God we had an expert uh, uh, storyboard, which Disney does so well. The storyboards were like these incredible, I wonder where they are to this day. I'm sure Steven Lisberger has them or Harrison Ellenshaw. But uh, the storyboards were just incredibly well done. So it gave Cindy and I, and, and Jeff <clears throat> and a mental image of what we were doing, because we were basically running around a, a totally black velveteen material covered platforms, uh, gangways and things like that, that were the, all the sets that would right. later be drawn in. So, um, and what a better place for this movie. I, I have to always say that, you know, in my mind, um, Disney was always the forefront of animation.
3: Yes. It's yep.
0: basically where it really was created. Walt Disney, as we know it, you know, um, with the great, uh, as, which they still do. their animated classics and things. Those movies were, you know, groundbreaking. And so what a better place to bring in this new, this new form, this new technology in animation called CG at that computer graphics. Right. It wasn't the CGI at that time, you right. know? but, um, and, um, but there's some great stories, Harrison, Ellen Shaw and Stephen they have these great stories about the making of it, how it, how they first, I think Stephen came out from Boston, I believe, and he pitched it around town and very much like George Lucas, who I think is his hero. Um, uh, George Lucas was unsuccessful in pitching star Wars around it. Right. In, uh, if it came, it came up to Richard Zanuck, I believe, uh, or one of the Zanuck boys at uh, at Twentieth Century Fox, that took a chance on it. Yeah, and look what happened. Yeah, changed the world. Well, I uh, think you know Stephen had this idea about this thing and this technology and everything that he had. Uh, I think he he did com, uh, commercials or something back in Boston. Okay. I think. Yeah. And somehow brought this thing and had an image of this guy, this sort of burly-looking energy energy thing and it was called neutron or something like that and um but then you know we uh we got down to the, the costuming and everything was very interesting and um you know it, it just uh it gave you a sense of nobody's ever nothing's quite looked like this before i kind of looked like, at this flash gordon type look i had nothing to draw on right other than the classic characters of science fiction that i saw yeah like flash gordon and and Uh, you know, the heroic, the hero stereotype.
5: And it does kind of have that quality because the way the characters look when they're in the computer, they almost look like they came off of a, of an old black and white movie, like an old Buster Crab. Oh, it almost looks like the old
0: uh, Buster Crab, you know, slash Gordon's there, Buck Rogers, you know, exactly in the 21st century. And, um, uh, Yes, I agree. I'm glad you you brought that up. I mean, uh, we originally saw Russias were all in black and white, so it almost and and also the great classic Metropolis.
3: Yes, the yep. black
0: and white silent film that was so great, um, or Things to Come. Yep, uh, which yep. is another great um, black and white classic. I've always been a, an old movie buff, so oh, cool. all Sorry. my references come from old movies yeah. and TV. <laughs> but um, you know, so. Uh, that's what it gave a sense of. And then I had to train with a guy to uh, throw a Frisbee. Oh, now, yeah. we all threw Frisbees. Frisbee came up when I was a kid. When I was a kid, that's when it came out. and It was a phenomena. And we all, you know, put our kid brothers, sisters, uh, hit them in the head with it and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, it was a weapon. We had no idea how capable <laughs> we were with it. But uh, you could hurt somebody with that throwing it at them. Anyway, um, but we all learned how to do that. But then I had to really learn. Right. How to do that. And here I had this little ranch out in north um, of north, um, San Fernando Valley, and I'd be out in the horse corral with a guy named Sam Shots or something. And he was a professional. I had no idea that this even existed. <laughs> a professional frisbee com- competition frisbee thrower. Wow. And, uh, boy, the things he could do with that thing. Wow. It was amazing, with That's more amazing. than one at the same time. Wow. And so he doubled it. Everybody, all those guys that were the my opponents in the game grid, yeah. even Sark himself, yeah. um, was that. Because David c- couldn't do that at all. He was British. Right. <laughs> They're not physical. Are you kidding me? That's why they play soccer, man. They can't use their hands. Americans use our arms and our fists and our, you know but <laughs> i'll get in trouble for that but uh <laughs> i love to poke fun i love david i do these oh. virtual conventions with him still i just saw him two three weeks ago
5: oh
3: that's awesome uh,
0: uh and the same uh you know i was here in the west coast and uh the u.s and he was in london and it was evening there i love him i've done two pro i did tron with him and then i also did a mini series with him uh called zoya that's right in 95 yeah. yeah and um so great i love him he's oh he's awesome. curmudgeon but yeah. uh, who, uh you know he's so, such a great actor and um you know, we have so much fun with that but no he did he had to be doubled in all that sort of thing okay but then you couldn't double that voice he is in his no. tremendous command on screen and uh, with Cindy, Cindy and I ran more. If I had a Fitbit on me at that time, all the steps I would have counted that I had <laughs> probably if it's supposed to, Fitbit loves you to get hit 10,000 a day. We probably did 50,000.
3: Wow. I mean,
0: running, running, jumping, climbing, yep. all those things yep. that weren't even used in the picture eventually. But uh, we had much more footage than that. And like I said, it was all in black and white. And, uh, Jeff was this uh, crazy guy, a uh, wonderful guy. I've been, you know, remained remain friends with him all these years. And nice. I so pray for him because he had announced that he had uh, lymphoma. Oh, geez. And uh, I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. And, uh, but he's got the best doctors helping him. And I guess the thing is, uh, was it, at least last time I heard, I don't know anything personally from him. I just want to make that clear. I'm going to go into what I've heard in the press. Uh, he announced that he had some of the finest doctors and that the tumor, whatever it was, has been shrinking and he's doing well. Oh, good. So, yeah, we we can't. The world without Jeff Bridges, I want to tell you. Oh, a I sad know. One. yeah. Yeah. And uh, I always wanted to say, I always say about Jeff, and I've seen him perform with his band, The Abiders, and, um, uh, you know, <laughs> I, who doesn't love Jeff Bridges? Right. I mean, who, how can you not? <laughs> Right. I, I mean, no so matter many... all his great films. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the and Fisher King. I always King felt and... because I had yeah, right. I mean, because I had worked with his father, Lloyd, another steadfast yeah. uh, icon of, of oh, television, yeah. especially, but many films, great, great films, High Noon with Gary Cooper and yeah. all these great things in the past. And um, I worked with him before I ever worked with Jeff. He he did a. Reparter on how the West was run my storyline. I was directly involved with Lloyd, and he'd always go, "You know, you remind me so much of my son Jeff. <laughs> how prophetic that would be!" Wow, that would be that's crazy. Working as 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 Jeff Bridges' sometimes contentious friend.
5: Yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, as Alan Bradley with Kevin Flynn. Right. And in um, fact, to this day, I call him Flynnster and He calls me Tronsky. Oh, that's cool. so. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. That's a first for you, Roger. I don't think I've ever mentioned that.
5: Oh, that nice! <laughs> well, the first Street for Street. then is now. Yeah,
0: Flynnster <laughs> and, and Tronsky. So, so then so, you guys uh, went
5: on to do the sequel, right? Tron Legacy.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and you got to remember that uh, twenty eight years later we did that, and uh, the world had rotated much differently again. And there was always this rumor, and um, if it wasn't for San Diego Comic Con, and the reaction to. I guess some footage that um, that they showed at Big Hall H there, with thousands of uh, of fans, yeah. Comic Con fans, uh, watching, and they just sneaked it in unannounced of of Jeff as he looked, you know, bearded and long hair and everything, um, in the Tron world and on, on a, a light cycle chase, um, very short stuff, but apparently they were watching at Disney. And huh. when the reaction to that movie, that little trailer, that footage, it was barely even a trade had no none of the professional thing of a trailer. It was just footage brought on. They freaked out, people were screaming, yelling Tron, you know, because the rumors had been out there, leaking, you know, out there and of something maybe was going to be happening in that, that way. And um, from what I heard it, the, the project was greenlit, the go was given. Wow! I'm just watching that sneaked footage, by the way, because you weren't supposed to have any cameras or anything like that to record, but somebody cleverly did and then leaked it online.
3: <laughs> oh, <wow.
0: laughs> no, that's the rest is history. Wow! And um, I got a call from uh, Disney, uh, from uh, Joe Kaczynski and Sean Bailey, who was the head of production there, and Joe Kaczynski, the director, and uh, I was just, I was in tears, I have to tell you. Really? They called me afterwards. I couldn't believe it. They asked me, "Would I please uh, consider uh, appearing?" You know, it wasn't the big uh, lead role. It wasn't Tron again, but just make a wonderful appearance in this picture. And what was I going to say, Roger? Right. No hell with that. I don't. Know. If I'm not, if it's not true Tron 2.0 or something, I don't want to do it. What well, are you kidding me? I, of course, I said if, yes. Yeah. You know. You know, and I mean, Jeff was a massive—you know—Academy Award winner already. You know, right. I mean, it was uh, that was quite a time for him. Crazy Heart, and yeah. Grit and uh, Tron Legacy, yeah. Uh, he, uh, you know, so it was so good, and uh, we shot that up in Vancouver, which really showed the world had changed. It wasn't at Disney Studios anymore in Burbank. It was uh, massive production. Uh, complex that was built for this in a place called Burnaby and uh, uh, part of the Vancouver area in British Columbia. Wow! And uh, massive sets and massive practical sets as well. Nice. It was quite amazing to see this little production that we started in 1981. Yeah. 1981, 80, somewhere around there.
5: It's, did you ever think that it would it would still be popular to this day?
0: Oh my gosh! I think. Uh, well, the latest thing I've seen is that Jared Leto wants to do a reboot of it. Oh, wow. And I think that's pretty great, too. Yeah. I mean, that was out on uh, some of the online, you know, showbiz stuff. Right. He'd been. That's in the pipeline, I guess. I have no idea. I don't know. Fans always think I know everything that's going on. I don't. <laughs> it's way above my pay grade to know what's going to happen. I know there was a considered a the, the continuation of the legacy story, which I would have personally loved to see. Yeah, because I think we kind of set up the sequel. The sequel to that one,
3: right? Uh, I don't
0: consider um, Tron Legacy a sequel. I consider it. Uh, I think uh, sort of the second chapter in a trilogy. Right. And I think the next one would have been that, but uh, circumstances changed as they do. Right. Right. Um, you know, and it didn't come about. It, I think about three, four years ago, it was about to, and uh, maybe even more than that now. But uh, they had something that they settled upon, script they settled on. And I know Joe Kaczynski was to direct again. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. And uh, I, I, the pleasure of doing that, to me, was also one other thing. Uh, not only returning to that, uh, you know, univ- that universe, but uh, I also got, to, they hired me to uh, screen test the young actors, actresses to play uh, Sam Flynn, and quora okay and is that her name quora yeah i, I think, think so, so yeah 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 the one that um uh who is um what's her name oh god who played her oh, <laughs> I, <have to> type <laughs> I, or... I should know this too yeah yeah <laughs> oh god i'll get it in a second um but anyway uh garrett headland i ended up getting the part but uh, i'll tell you there probably was 10 12 guys all young prominent up-and-coming actors I um, had already been in some major films, and I got the honor to work with these kids. I mean, here I was, you know, I was already in my my 60s, and, uh, um, you know, I was, you know, another whole era away. And uh, I, so I was kind of starstruck at the people all the way up to, uh, what's his name? Uh, Casey Affleck wanted desperately. Right. Uh, Casey was too old. He was already 34 at the time. 35. Oh, jeez. Something like that and uh, he took time out we did it on a Saturday yeah um, at a at a studio because he was such a Tron fan wow that he he wanted a crack at it yeah and I got to work with Casey Affleck. how about that wow. well, I admire Gregory <laughs> so um but um it was it i I kind of knew it when and I I don't think I had seen Garrett prior to this but then now maybe I had. He had a couple of other things, and he was more—he was—he uh, was really focused uh, at the time on uh, doing this um, Jack Kerouac story on the okay. road that the Francis Ford Coppola had developed, and he was all about that. Into small indies, you know, independent right, right. To do this big thing. And I tried—I think I was talking to him one day, and I said, "Yeah, but I think you know when you do these big tentpole productions." You know, this is the argument. Yeah, I know the independent films, small films you want to do. Those are very personal and everything, Comment, you know, uh, personal comments as films. But um, you do one of these and you get that big audience recognition. It's only going to help your independent p- pictures be seen. Oh, absolutely. You know? And and by the so, way,
5: Olivia Wilde was the one who played Quora. Olivia, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. God almighty. <laughs> Took me a while to remember it, too. Again. I hope I can. Okay.
0: No, it's just you know um and uh, interesting with her as well she had been around already she'd grown up she was a child's actress you know yeah. so but um i did I, I think all those auditions over at disney and i th- and then i think they brought garrett back again and we kind of looked at him and i got to be in kind of the process there i was kind of in shock cuz Stephen and i were sitting there and then they, i auditioned about 4 or 5 uh of the, of the uh, actresses for quora and um, they hadn't really anything they settled on. So what we did was the scene from Blade Runner where he tells her those are not your memories. Oh, okay. That Sean Young did so wonderfully in her eyes and everything, looking and going. you know, She was a replicant and wanted to believe that she was actually that girl, that young woman. And they had all these photos, remember? It was such a great scene. And we did that scene. I got to play Harrison Ford playing, you know, Rick Deckard. <laughs> Blade <Yeah>. Runner. <laughs> That's so awesome. It was it was just sci fi wonderland. That anyway, uh, you know, so, uh, but I remember uh, sitting next to Stephen and we we're watching now Garrett, we've narrowed it down to Garrett, yeah, and then Olivia, and they're doing the scene down at the end of the Solar Sailor, reminiscent of uh, the first Tron. Yeah. And, um, uh, and Jeff looks back and he's looking back at them. He's going off to knock on the uh, universe or whatever he said on the game grid or whatever.
2: Uh,
0: Jeff was so great with his, you know, his sort of witty sides yeah. in that movie. And um, and we were sitting, and we were down below. This thing was up above us where they were shooting and they were looking. We were, we were right below them and we kept nudging each other going, this is it. This is the two. Stephen, I think <laughs> so. So enjoyed, and I'm, I'm sure he still does, all things Tron because this was his baby, his creation. And yeah. He, you know, Disney took took the chance on a one, uh, first-time director. Right. With millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. That's always the pressure.
5: Oh, the money that they've
0: laid out, and here you are doing it. And so, you know, it wasn't always a happy time. There was a lot of tension when we made the first one. As well as the second, I'm sure. In uh, the time I was on it, um, I was only up there a few weeks, all in all, um, back and forth. Um, you know, on Tron Legacy, it was incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, on the original Tron, it was uh, scary, yeah. exhilarating, all at the same time. Well, there had been nothing you like know? it before. So. And there still hasn't anything that looks like it since. Yeah. Nothing looks like the original Tron. Right. It really doesn't. When you look at those cells, nothing quite looks like that. Right. We have many science fiction movies. Okay, And this is actually I think the reason you and I are still we're talking about it right now is that it's it's the science fiction that we are living. Right. We're actually living this in a strange way. And it's kind of naive little story. It predicts the world that we're living in.
5: Well, I mean, David and Warner's character had than a, ever. yeah. David Warner's character had a touchscreen, a desk, you know, yes. A computer. Yes, yeah.
0: That was just oh, amazing. Yeah. Master control program. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and and you know, it does make sense when you're on your computer and you're creating a program. That is a little you down there. That's your little presence. Right. That's your presence. Avatar. It. It's an avatar, right? So there you have avatar, right? There you go. So, I mean, it's all all a wonderful thing, um, but that. And uh, you know probably from its history that when we came out, it was a giant kerfluffle. <clears throat> you know, it did nothing. <laughs> I know it, it did scared crit- the hell out of them. Critically uh, well, though. Critically,
5: but that doesn't help.
0: Not so much. No, it was not a uh, success critically. It, uh, the box office was pretty limp, and that was pretty much Disney at the time. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody being offended, but uh, you know, Disney owns the world now. It runs the world. Right. <laughs> I swear to you every aspect.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, uh
0: it, but it is as a corporation and um but at that time uh, it's it wasn't doing so well. It was running right into the ground. Yeah. In fact, it was going financially have a lot of tr- troubles Ron Miller, the son-in-law of Disney was running it at the time and I don't think he was a, probably a, the best choice for that. Right. Um he did greenlight that Tron. Okay. I mean, yeah. But uh, I had heard no major star at that time would work at Disney Studios. Wow! They were still making the Herbie Lovebug yep. movies and things like that, yeah. and they had the Black Hole, the which Black was Hole. a dismal yeah. failure for them. And so um, I found it very courageous of them to speak well of them that that they took the chance on this other thing that had no guarantee of success. Right. You know, the Black Hole, I believe, had a, a major author. I'm not sure, but this did not. Right. And a first time director, creator, director. I mean that's that's a huge gamble. And yeah. um, they were willing to do it. And uh, we're still talking about that movie today. Well exactly. You know, I did also Tron Uprising, the animated yep. uh, version, which I thought was very stylish. I was very disappointed. It seems they have a love hate relationship with Tron. It's their original franchise. And yet I've done the video games and um, yep, voice work and that, you know. Yeah. Right. So I mean, um, but yet everyone knows what Tron is. Right. <laughs> Maybe they ain't never even saw it, but they know that word. Right. You know, they know the name. They go, What well, not that
5: something to
0: do with video games or something. Right. You
5: know? Um, That's incredible. But, so, uh, so after Tron, you went, you then mm-hmm. went on for TV to do Bring Him Back Alive and Scare Crow and Mrs. King. How was sort of that segue for you in terms of career?
0: Well, I, I <laughs> and, uh, strangely enough, I, this is the way my I was thinking. I had a, um, uh, uh, I had switched agents. I had a major manager this time, a very flamboyant man named Jay Bernstein, who was quite renowned in Hollywood at that time, hmm. and he was known as the star maker. And uh, They don't have these kind of characters anymore um, in Hollywood, and we're lesser for it. There were much more character, uh, colorful people, much bigger personalities. It's kind of crazy now. It's so corporate that No one really stands out as, as much as they used to. That's my critique of today. Um, what happened was Tron came out kind of, kind of limp. And I said, I'm not a movie star. best go back to television. (laughs) Now, what was the current rate? No, and I'm cleaning that up by the way, when I say, I went, holy, you know what?
2: Um,
0: oh boy. This isn't where I belong, I guess. Anyway, um, I had these uh, television opportunities, and uh, then I had this like major uh, manager agency with uh, William Morris. Now I'm in the William Morris agency. I'm with Jay Bernstein representing me, and uh, my life changed a great deal from that. From the so, and I do. I want to thank Tron as well because it gave me cachet as well right something he'd just come out in disney's tron you know in this business here we all know the films sometimes in their own time and i think this is a good example aren't as appreciated and then years later much more appreciated you know right. and then sometimes right. they're classics now they're called classics and things like that yeah. but they were literal bombs you know at the time yeah like blade runner. just the period blade runner was the same way that's yeah. that was a seminal summer yeah of films with um, I think there was a Star Trek major Star Trek movie, *Rapid yep. Con*. Was yep. It possibly. Star Trek Two. Yeah. Uh, you had. Um, the, yep. You John Carpenter's is uh, the thing. Another bomb. That's a huge. The thing. Hit. Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, e. T. Yep. You know, for the kids. Right. <laughs> I always said Tron could kick that alien's ass. <laughs> but anyway, that's um, another story. Uh, anyway, I um, what was a what was a big franchise at that time in the films. And what and, and traditionally television always kind of followed with some kind of a copy of it. Right. And it was the the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. So uh and the Indiana Jones series. So they were searching around for somebody to play on ABC uh it was uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey and then CBS had this thing uh, Frank Buck uh, bring him back alive all taking place in a sort of vintage old movie type of look to it. And um like Raiders, so successfully did right. the old um, serials, um, and I was offered—I was offered by Don Delasays. But I'd already given my word to the head of CBS, uh, Bud uh, Bud Grant, that um, if we did a series, uh, we Jay and I said we would do it at CBS. I had been successful there with uh, some other things, and so. Um, they wanted to do it, and Don Belisario called me personally, which was so not right, not hmm. um, according to the rules. You right, know, right. You call representation, not the actors. And he tried to, you know, he tried to. You got to do this. It's just right up your alley. I like what you do, kid. Blah blah blah. He's this tough ex-marine. Yeah. He created, uh, you know, crips uh, all the great. Uh, oh, like Airwolf uh, and Magnum PI, Airwolf. Yeah. You name them. I mean, all those, things. and. uh, so he and uh currently ncis which um he, he did for years created that um so anyway uh i said and here's the kind of guy i was so i guess i am from the midwest where your your word is your bond and when a handshake is a handshake and um i said no i i, I can't do that mr rosario i i've already given my word to uh bud grant at cbs that um, we would do a series for them, but I thank you so much and I think he cursed under his breath and hung up on me but anyway um uh, I <laughs> don't know how he got my number either. But I remember being turning that down in the middle of my kitchen oh, and uh so i um you know i took we went further with it now frank buck was a, an actual character he had uh he had done uh he was a big game hunter but not in the sense of hunting and shooting a mag in fact a number of zoos in the world and uh San Diego Zoo and the and and Brooklyn Zoo uh, were without him, they would have never existed.
3: Wow!
0: He he saved many many animals from extinction, especially the white rhino, huh. up in uh, up in northern India, and um, which was going extinct, uh, extinct at that time. And this is back in the 1920s, is where he was really more active as a young He wrote many many books. Bringing Back Alive it was a huge hit book, right. I know because I was sent. Uh, from fans first editions of that book Wow. and jungle trails tiger fangs uh, a number of uh, of his bestsellers of his adventures in the uh, animal world but what we did was taking the cue from uh, Spielberg was um, uh, World War II or impending World War II the years before the thirties. so we kind of brought him up to date but what he actually did too is he he filmed uh, a lot of his adventures in the early days, hmm. the camera crew, him fighting a boa constrictor and things like that, and trying to get it caged and wow. uh, tigers and so on and so forth. And he was quite a uh, uh, back when they did those movie serials, you know, in between right. the the uh, the things. Yep. And so he is his uh, Frank Buck's bringing back alive was a big. Uh, I show I was shown pictures of marquees and major theaters on Broadway and everything playing. His uh, Columbia serials, right, and he had some plots in them. You know, yeah. I have a, a, a photograph of him with a forty-five automatic and his pith helmet on, looking dangerous, like something was coming at him or something. You know, <laughs> and um, so uh, and he used to shoot them some of those adventure things on the Columbia back lot. Strangely enough, that's where we shot our series. Wow! So there was a lot of enthusiasm about it, but we lost out finally after one season. Because back in those days, three three networks plus your local station. Right. And, uh, you know, that was dueling every night for the top spot yeah. for that audience. And uh, we came in always second to uh, the 10th season of Happy Days, which oh, was wow. a juggernaut. Yeah. Yeah. And um, after 17, 18 episodes or something like that, I think we got to a full 22 um, bud grant called me i would i would be calling him with the latest ratings and i'd see the producers uh coming down the, coming onto the set and i going i would hang my head going oh my god because <laughs> they'd have the, they'd have what we call the overnights and yeah. then we'd get later in the afternoon the, the actual rating right
2: and uh, now it's so much
0: quicker all the it's demographics now and hits and likes and all those things so um and i go oh, how do i get through another day because i was I was beaten up in that show every week. I mean it's great, but it was a very physical show. Yeah. And I hired Cindy Morgan from Tron. Okay. To play the Femme Fatale in it. Yeah. And uh she did a number of she only had uh, uh I don't know how many episodes on it, but uh um but she loved doing it and uh so, anyway, uh, it was great. I learned how to ride elephants. Nice. Fight with an old toothless lion. <laughs> uh, I wrestled an alligator in the thing. Um, all kinds of things. A Cro- wow. crocodile. Well, I, awesome. I think it was a croc. And, um, and did so many fight scenes with Japanese soldiers and things. So, we, we yeah. placed it in Singapore, where, which was really his, his actual location.
2: Okay. That was where
0: his headquarters yeah. was back in the 20s, Singapore in uh, Malaysia and uh he wasn't an african hunter he was in, in asia the whole time in the south pacific and um so we did that and we had the impending kind of danger of slowly you know imperialistic japan was happening at the right. time right yeah uh, spies and we had the the uh, it was it was a fun time a fun, oh, fun time we were it was like doing an old movie every time yeah i i would go into the raffles hotel which is a famous hotel where all the great authors, Joseph Conrad, Somerset Maugham, all the, uh, Graham, Graham Greene, um, wow. all these famous British authors of the time, uh, had carved their names in the bar there at the famous Raffles hotel. And there was always a place of intrigue with spies and all these kind of people, very much like Casablanca, Rick's Cafe, right. America yep. Yep. and Casablanca. And, um, so we always had those kind of we blended those spy stories and espionage. And, yeah, uh, you know, in with my uh, normal.
5: I just remember stuff. as as a kid, my friends and I being bummed when it, it didn't come
0: back. You know, it's like, oh, I know you, you were, know. were bummed. Oh, was <laughs> I bummed. Well, yeah. But,
3: <laughs>
0: but the reason was 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 we were killed in the ratings. We had yeah. strong second. We were we were we had strong ratings. Believe me. You guys were contributing to it, yeah. But it was the uh, it was the uh, happy days thing, so yeah. Uh, but I, would, Grant said because uh, they love the effort we put into it. But he said, "Don't worry, I'm going to find just something better." And uh, this goofy script came along, and I had a a, a western offer, of a contemporary western story that Columbia was doing called The Yellow Rose. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a another version of Dallas type of thing, a contemporary, and Sam Elliott was starring in that. And, and then uh, there was this goofy thing called The Scarecrow and Mrs. King. <laughs> and it was about a housewife, how she gets tangled up with this spy through no fault of her own, right? and ends up on this madcap adventure with him in the world, saving the free world. Okay? Right. So I looked at that, and I kind of almost flipped a coin going, okay, my real love would be to the, to the Yellow Rose, John Wilder produced. And uh, there was this crazy couple of um, that, that wrote uh, um, uh, what's the, I forget their names, but anyway, they were one of uh, a guy gal combination there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, they were great. Eugenie, Ross Lemming, and Brad. Brad, 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 Brad Buckner. Uh, I Buckner. Uh... Yeah. Anyway, they were wonderful. And uh, when I went to meet with them, I was totally uh, hooked. I had to go audition for that for CBS and uh, Kate Jackson and I were brought together. She was going to start. And I thought, you know, Roger, you got to think about these types of things. when I'm going, she's Charlie's angel. Yeah. In my time, <laughs> they were, they were the top. Oh yeah. It was as big as you could get Charlie's angels. Someday. Yeah. And I remember them, you know, fair fawcett Oh yeah. And, and, Cheryl, and, Ladd. Kate and Cheryl, Ladd Jackson. And, and all of them. And i have I've since worked with three of them. I never got to work with Farah, but uh, I got to work with, um, Oh, what was the other one? Uh, beautiful brunette as well. Oh, uh, uh, uh you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, I worked with Cheryl a couple of times me. as well. So, <laughs> but Kate was this very funny working yeah. woman. And I thought, my God, I, she always played kind of serious in, uh, the Charlie's angels. I saw. So, um, Anyway, we we developed uh, the guy that was going to direct the pilot, uh, and uh, we got together and we developed, I think, three scenes. Actually, five, but I think we only really fully developed three. And then we took them before all the network heads and uh, the network and studios. This was going to be Warner Brothers television now. It was quite (laughs) air-raising. I was in such a daze when I walked out of the room. We actually did it, and they laughed. Imagine Roger, yeah. studio executives laughing—unheard <laughs> of. These are these are jauntiest, cynical, right? Television business bureaucrats, right? Okay, <laughs> nothing moves them, and we actually had them belly laughing. That's there was some great. scenes from the from the pilot of that, and um, and so. I walked out of the room, and Kate said, "I think that went very well, very well." I, hope. she, you know, I think there were like two or three other guys that they had. Uh, I think David Soul was one of them, who was an old friend of. Uh, oh yeah. Kate, I think there there were a couple guys that were maybe in contention, but I was on the number one slot, and I thank God that I uh, I helped win them over. Oh yeah. And we started that, and it was a great association. That's probably, really because uh, that's probably the biggest. In television, I got to. Oh at yeah. At that time. Yeah. I mean, it was a. It was. Uh, we started. I think we were on Monday nights. Yeah. CBS, and we killed it. I mean, we killed it. Our first week, we were like in number three or number two or somewhere up that. I forget who was the uh, the long lasting number one, but I think. Um, and we, I don't it think we been... ever got lower than four years. I think we were still in the top twenty. Yeah, you always. guys were
5: up against one and... of the later seasons of Heart to Heart, I think.
0: Probably was, but that was the time of that kind of the, the, uh, you know, the couples show, you know, it ended with, it started with kind of heart to heart, which actually harkens back to the old thin man mysteries and so on and so forth back in the thirties and forties, William Powell, Myrna Loy, and uh, the kind of comical drama adventure type of thing. And we had a lot of that. I, I so enjoyed that series. I worked my tail off on that, but Katie and I, I thought developed, a chemistry, yeah. That uh, we were unusual. We weren't. Uh, I don't think you, you looked right away and went, "Oh my God, they're perfect." No, we developed it. We oh, developed yeah. Lee and Amanda to the point where uh, we we would occasionally go off book, and she was a master at that. Nice. <laughs> she really was. She was masterful in how she could take it, and then she she could rattle off dialogue, uh, you know, so fast, and yet she would go off, and I would just follow her lead on it. Right. And come up with stuff that I never knew I could do. So that was, you know, an an amazing time.
5: You know what's really funny? Unfortunately,
0: she. Yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go on. No, no, no. Until she became ill, we were still going strong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I was going to say um, uh, what's really funny about when you think about that first episode, you couldn't get away with the main plot point today where you run up to her and hand her the package and say, hey, give it to the guy in the red hat and then take off.
0: Which was such a. sight gag but it worked right but he gives that look and then the whole train car turns around they all have fezzes on yeah <laughs> <laughs> some,
3: some,
0: you know some group uh, it was too much i mean yeah it was those kind of things but it's how that stuff you know those are stereo you know you know stereotypes all come from something you know and uh, cliches right but you know, if you do it right, it still works. But you know but saying? not
5: even the stereotype. What I was talking about was the fact that he just hands yeah. her a package and she has no idea who it is. Nowadays, people would yeah, go, It's a bewildered.
0: bomb. It's a bomb. You it's know? a bomb, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But she had no idea. She's standing there with her house coat on, with her slip on, you know, yeah. underneath. And when she turns, I love it because she says, Do you uh, ticket? I don't have a ticket. She says, Well, what do you have? I'm here in my net. Yeah. I'm only in a, a house housecoat of my sli- or slipper dressing gown or whatever And the whole yeah. all the guys look, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, they'll lean over. <laughs> Why are you here? You know, the, the the conductor. We all played very very well. And of course I'm getting my ass kicked out in the uh, out on the trains, you know, by the right. <laughs> <laughs> by the KGB <laughs> guys. And so, oh, you yeah. know, all the while but that, it worked. And it, as zany as it was, it was yeah. a total fantasy type show. And it was zany. And, uh, you know, we, we went to Europe and filmed it in the summer oh, yeah. of 84, which really worked. You know, the Cold War was still going on. And right. we had all these marvelous German and Austrian and English actors to work with. And it was a great time. A great, great time in my life. Hello,
2: this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margariti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So, join me and my rotating crew of co hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So, join me for The Bloody Pit.
5: Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm, podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service, When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process. And in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at podcast upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, PodParadise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple, only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee for 19 bucks a month. You get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one on one customer support. You pay month to month and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much. I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough i'm telling you i i really didn't believe it until i actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from itunes to stitcher and spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time so if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform i highly recommend Podserve.fm. check them out And you were not only great friends with Kate Jackson, but also um, Beverly
0: Garland, who I—I uh, love Beverly Garland. What she a was lovely awesome. woman! She is so great, and she was so perfect for that. Yeah, but That that sort of dithering dotty. Yeah, mean, she was, <laughs> you know, clams again, dear. You know, I mean, she always had these great one-liners, and she was great that way off off camera as well it was a constant laugh with her and you know she owns a hotel out here it's called the beverly garland that's it's right in the yep. valley here off of vineland and um i often saw her at at events there after and many years after she would she would be there and uh, uh she was a dear soul it Really was nice and she had a long career herself oh yeah she was one of the original scream queens
5: oh yeah so it the conquered
0: the world yeah you know your stuff oh yeah, yeah? oh yeah she could scream in horror with the best of them. Yeah, you know what's her name? Uh, you know, like uh, who took that from Janet Lee? Uh, what's her name? <laughs> Janet Lee, right? Yeah. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you had to make that look good, man, to sell it. You know. Oh yeah. And uh, not easy, but um, no, we had some great, and I, I will always, uh, uh, you know, we had uh, the original George Jefferson, who played Billy Milrose, my boss.
5: Oh,
3: Sherman Hemsley,
0: uh, yeah. Mel Stewart.
5: Oh, Mel Stewart, yeah.
0: Mel Mel was, uh, and and he was another one that I was in stitches. Every Friday night, you know, Mel would, we would pretty much shoot the the first ep- part of the episode. We always right. kind of shot backwards in sequence or out of sequence, but generally it was Friday night in Billy Melrose's office. It'd be with the last thing scheduled on the thing for the weekend, and, um... It was Mel telling us what the mission is, you know, what what is the thing, scarecrow, scarecrow. And he was such a hoot, Mel. (laughs) Oh, God, I love that man. I I could never keep a straight face in that office. I mean, we would be in hysterics half the time because he'd get flustered and what the version of the lines of his that would come out (laughs) would just, if they could have just printed those.
2: That's cool. Instead
0: of the actual lines, they were because <laughs> he'd always have these arm-length speeches. You know? Right. I mean, Mel was a, a Korean War veteran. I mean, my God, he'd been through it all in his life, and he was the original George Jefferson in All in the Family.
5: That's right. Yeah.
0: Which was such a monumental, uh, groundbreaking series, TV series. And uh, uh, but he, we were in hysteria all the time. Uh, God bless him. You know, he's gone, and so is Beverly, but uh, yeah. I just have such great memories of them. Yeah, and Katie, I I haven't seen her in many years, but she survived, her, you know,
2: breast yeah. cancer
0: and um, everything. And that was why we originally went off. Otherwise, I think we would have continued on. Oh, I didn't uh, know we that. were doing. We were holding our own. Yeah, it yeah. was that. Um, and in the 1980s, you didn't mention the big C, right, John Wayne played right um it was aids was just coming yep. to the forefront people's awareness of this thing that was going on and also breast cancer because cancer was uh, a taboo in right. our society then to talk about it right it was still a taboo now everyone wears it on their sleeve yeah you know yeah, exactly. a breast cancer survivor we champion that openly right but in those times uh, and katie and we weren't told Wow. none of the rest of the cast none of, none of us were told it was a huge thing, and i respect that yeah but at the time it was baffling it was right. 1987 we were in our third season uh wait no it was like it came out in 83 so yeah. fourth season yeah we were looking forward to that fifth that all important fifth season you know right and um uh but god bless her she uh it was hard for her wow that's too bad and, um, it was a very tearful goodbye to everybody when we had to Closed down. It wasn't easy for her. Yeah. So, I can understand that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people go out of work very quickly. Right. Right. And, um, and I have
5: to say, no, as a kid, you know, couldn't. Kate Jackson was the reason I I started watching the show. No offense, but <laughs> of course you did.
0: No, no, no. I understand that. No, she was a Charlie's Angels. That yeah. was a huge cachet, man. That was that was a big rep. That everyone, no one remembers. That was a very big television. Series. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, gave us the Farrah Foster poster. Yeah, <laughs> That sold in the millions. And my manager was her agent at that time.
5: Oh, wow. Yes.
0: Yeah, so Jay knew all about that. He helped create the Farrah Foster the Fawcett Mystique. That's amazing. But that uh, famous of, of poster that was sold millions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> millions of young men in college had her up on the wall i'm sure you know in high school too and mom didn't like that yeah but anyway um you know <laughs> but so funny. Uh, it was a great time you know i look back on that and i know you know it's from an older man's uh perspective but i look back on the on the 80s with um you made some damn good entertainment back then. Oh, yeah. It was the heyday really of did. action TV action shows. I mean, did you get to yeah, hang out with any of the car other... chase, man.
5: Yeah, did you hang out with any other stars? Well, I knew like... the Duke of Hazard boys because oh, I was you. doing,
0: oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I knew John yeah. and Tom, Little Pat, John Schneider. Yeah. And also the guys that replaced them because Tom and John had uh, gone on strike. Oh, because right. Because of a thing called Mysterious Thing, Roger called merchandising yeah <laughs> wow what a concept they would make toys of you yeah and sell them you know <laughs> and make big profits and the little likenesses of you didn't see a dime right so they were one of the first guys and they literally left it and uh a guy, a guy named byron sherry who played uh played john schneider's Luke or whichever one they were. Anyway, the guys—they almost looked just like them. That's a, that was a lesson for me me to learn too. is go. We'll be careful what battle you pick. Right. You can because always replace. The studio would just replace you. Yep. And put two guys who look just like you right yeah. in there. You know. <laughs> and it was the General Lee car, anyway. I mean, come on. And the uh, Waylon Jennings song. So uh, you yeah. know. Um, it, it, But those guys were right there on the lot with me because we were always having to stop as they went speeding by. You know, and then I'd wave at them, or give them the finger. They'd give me it back, and you know, things like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> all in fun. But um,
5: so, you know. so between um, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, and yeah. Babylon Five, you did a ton of TV movies, and and uh, you, like you, did... yeah,
0: because that was the reigning thing at that time. Yeah, the, the MOW, Movie of the Week. You know, and as we... all the all the networks did them. I predominantly did CBS's and things because I had been kind of a CBS guy then.
5: Right, and then you also did Cuffs okay. with Christian Slater. How was how that uh, shoot?
0: Well, I did uh, Cuffs, and then I went on to do... Let's see, I, I was actually... Um, I did Cuffs and The Babe with John Goodman, almost right. simultaneously. Right. Um, I was supposed to do another Gambler, and uh, the Gambler franchise went from um, CBS which was strong. I don't know why. I don't know the politics of it, really, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I don't want to know. But uh, but whatever happened, they were a couple weeks almost about to do it. I auditioned over at Universal for a feature film starring John Goodman playing Babe Ruth. That's right. And I went over there and um, Arthur Hiller was the director and um, I got called back a couple times in front of various people there at Universal and the production. And I got they wanted me to do the role of Jumpin' Jack Dugan, uh, Jumpin' Joe Dugan, and um, who was going to be sort of an amalgamation of several players that they played with, but they kind of singled it down to one character. And um, anyway, uh, and then I did Cuffs, which was, you know, small, uh, it was like, I think, a a long night's work, a couple couple days, maybe three, four days on that thing. And I had to come back in the middle of... uh, the Babe and do another shot of me chasing the car down the street or whatever it was. I don't know what it was. But anyway, it um, uh, back in those days, you couldn't do two productions at the same time. And I, did I ever actually do it? When I think of it, maybe I didn't do it and they wanted me to. And it was going to be some needed shooting. And I couldn't do it because I was already in Chicago on location uh, doing The Babe. And so... Um, but Cuffs with Christian was interesting. Christian was uh, a rising star at the time. Yep. and done, what, True Lies and all those things. did he do Trump, True Lies? Uh, what was it? A true Romance. True Romance. Yeah. I'm thinking of the other one. True Lies. Yeah. Um, Arnold. But, uh, yeah, so I got cast uh, in that, audition for that, to play his brother in the beginning. And I got myself shot, killed in church. Yeah. <laughs> got it. All my female fans literally hate that movie because <laughs> i die in it and i'm brutally killed by uh what's his name leon leon
2: oh oh god he say he always plays great heavies
0: always oh yeah he's a, he's a terrific act, character actor but he's so badass in that one he was just a terrible man anyway he shoots me down in that but uh, i like christian a great deal you know his mother was a prominent um mary joe slater the prominent casting agent in Hollywood for oh, that's many, right. many years. She, and she did uh, originally my um, uh, casting, for, I think, for Babylon 5. So
2: um okay. was involved in that.
0: Wow. Yeah, she handled that show in, the, in its beginnings. Then it turned into somebody else, Fern Champion or somebody like that. Anyway, but uh, yeah, she was... Um, and every time I'd, uh, I'd see her, if I went in for something, I'd always ask about Christian after that going, so how's your son, the actor? And she, she, she'd go, oh, yo, know, Christian's doing this, that, that, that. So, uh, yeah, we had a good time on that one. Yeah. I kept saying, I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm like working with young Jack Nicholson here. In yeah. Fact, he yeah. was always compared to Jack Nicholson <laughs> in his early portrayals, you know? Yeah. And Cuffs was an unusual one. I loved it. I, I think it's a gem of a little movie. Oh, it's un- definitely underrated. The way he definitely underrated. And he, uh, You know how he would talk to the camera. That's a tough thing to do. And he did it very successfully. Yeah. Because we're all trained never to look at the camera. Yeah. You see through the camera or go by. Right. You know, you may look through the shot, but never look into the lens. And so it's kind of that, that naked eye looking at you, (laughs) you know, there's nobody (laughs) looking back or this guy, another guy's eye. But I thought it was a cute movie. Yeah. I I enjoy watching it every time.
5: My friends and I yeah. went and saw that at a, like a late show, it was at like a ten or eleven at night at the theater, and uh, we came out and we just literally laughed for twenty minutes after that movie. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> it's just great stuff and great score to it, great music. Yeah, everything. I still, when he goes to visit my grave at the at the cemetery, and the, and the theme music starts playing underneath, I start crying like I'm actually dead there for God's sake. I mean, wow. how dare they murdered his brother who was such a good guy? <laughs> yeah, you know. I've always been Joe Goodguy, too, and um, that's right. sometimes it would rankle me. I, but, you know, that's your—that's <laughs> what people think. That's not a bad thing. No,
5: it's good to be the good guy. I've especially... always
0: known the guys that play the villains want to play the hero, and the heroes, the guys who always play the heroes – Always want to play the villains, so it's we're never happy, you know. Never well, happy.
5: and it's interesting how it goes back to the beginning when you talked about being in Ten Little Indians and the the rush you mm-hmm. felt being the hero and saving the the woman yeah. and saving the day, you know. It's it, every
0: little boy fantasy. Exactly. I mean, it, it, we're still like we're always a boy inside. Oh yeah. All the way through your life. Absolutely. You never change. You know, there's always that childlike part of it, and uh, you know, I still make a living at making believe. Oh yeah. So I'm currently doing, I'm currently on Seth MacFarlane's The Orville.
5: Oh, that's right.
0: Trying to do the third season right now. Yeah, it's been yeah. the longest third season in history. Yeah. Cause it's taking over a year to do, <laughs> you know, I, seriously. Right, I, right. Called, I had uh, three episodes or something like that I'm doing, uh, but uh, I won't talk more about that until it comes on. Okay. but so, anyway, <laughs> I just want to give a sort of heads up. I'm back in the world of outer space that's awesome and uh, sci-fi and it's it's been so much fun.
5: Well speaking of that I know I've I've kept you for quite a long time here I just wanted okay. to briefly touch on Babylon 5 which I do know is a little bittersweet because most of the cast are are no longer with us passed away. Yeah. yeah. So i um, I mean are you yeah. still in touch with like J Michael Straczynski and Bill Mooney?
0: All the time I just was uh, emailing with him yesterday in nice. fact yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's a uh, uh, it's another thing that people are rediscovering now on HBO Max. Yes, and Max. I say that uh, it's kicking butt on that. Apparently, That's right? What I was uh, we've been all talking about and Billy. Uh, we we're all on sort of a thread there, and uh, Billy Moomy and Tracy Scoggins and yep. uh, Claudia Christian. Nice, and um, we've all been talking about how great it looks. You know it's all been dressed up and made new looking again oh it looks beautiful uh, because it's because now it's been done that because um you know they only had the dvd release and never like a blu-ray or something like that right because of all the effect shots and how they were shot originally it'd be they would have to go and reshoot them that's what i was told but now um you know but uh, uh, now it looks great so whatever they did they did it okay yeah technically And but, um, you know, it it shows again its time in which it was made. Everything that is shot and filmed reflects in some way the time in which it was done. Right. Whether it's going back in time or present or in the future, it still comments in some way about filmmaking at the time and uh, what is going on in the world at the time, you know, reflected in the stories and things like that. And Babylon 5 very much shows the 90s there. And the ad, the rise of the internet and the rise of, because that's when we had chat rooms suddenly and Joe Straczynski knew all of this stuff and he was doing it. He'd be on there all night long with fans across the world, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we always prided ourselves at being the little space station that could. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't Star Trek. We were the anti-Star Trek and we wore it proudly, proudly. We were the rebels. Oh,
5: absolutely! You know? Because you know, you had yes, you had action and adventure, but it was like a political thriller. You know, there was it was so it was much all kinds of it. things.
0: We, we had so much. We even had monsters. You know, yeah, shadows, the shadows. Uh, we had creatures and um, imminent doom. There was always always a sense of imminent doom. Star Trek was always about the future and going forward. Yeah, Bright. right, right, um, optimistic. Ours was pessimistic human beings dragging their garbage and their baggage wherever they go, you know, war and 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 other races. And not everybody was, nobody was ET out there. Okay. Right. Everybody was a badass alien racist, you know, yeah. and we were dealing, it was sometimes it was Fort Apache and sometimes it was the United Nations, Yeah, Yeah. but it was always, uh, uh, you know, and that's what I love about it still to this day that, um, and then that character, I got to go from A to Z. Oh, yeah. As a, as a character, you know, I got to live a full life. Yeah. From a young man to an older man. Yeah. And then, you know.
5: And did you find when you walked into the role of John Sheridan. Did you yeah. find that you could relate to him because he, the character, had to sort of step in to, you know, to fill in these big shoes? He had a lot to deal with. He had to catch up on things because mm-hmm. he hadn't didn't know anything about the station. And did you, as an as yep. an actor, feel the same way because you're coming into the second season, you're filling big shoes? Yep. You've it, got,
0: you know, it was a uh, uh, it was a daunting experience. Uh, I want to. I always thank uh, Claudia Christian, who, who I, if you'll look at those first couple episodes, I mean, I'm always with her, and she helped. Me. Help me with it. Right. And, you know, just keep the tension down. There was, I don't know. I felt pretty good about it because I did know Doug. um, uh, Oh, God. It just flew out of my head. Um, Doug, 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 Doug. uh, He was was the executive producer. I'd done a Western with him in 79. Um, I'll get it. But anyway, uh, but walking onto that set, I knew the DP, John Flynn. He had shot that. I married Wyatt Earp. So I knew him very well. I, I'd done a couple things with him. So, and it was shot out in North Hollywood. I didn't have to fly to Canada. I didn't have to. I was in a time when anything I did, I always had to leave the country. It was generally Canada where all those movies of the week were shot and they still are. Doug Netter was... The, you know, the, so yeah. I got this... I got, Doug Netter, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. thank you. Doug was a salty old guy and God, he was so enthusiastic. about it. And I met this incredible genius of a guy named... Joseph Michael Straczynski, this tall, lanky man with glasses, and uh, I mainly always saw him behind these computer panels. I walked to his office; mm. he was always working, and he was the creator of this project. And uh, anyway, I had uh, you know a daunting experience. Fans, a lot of fans, didn't readily accept me. Right. Uh, that was okay, but that, my job was to win them over, and I did. Yeah. Um, I make no bones about that. I did everything I could others would go home at night, I would be in the office on the phone with 23 radio stations at that time uh, advertising my entrance in the Babylon 5 and giving publicity to Babylon 5. Wow. These are the things people don't realize you have to do. Yeah. So not only did I have to learn this character, but I also had to help sell this because it had been in danger of going off. Right. And um, it wasn't on a regular networks. It was on a thing. It was a loose knit uh, group uh, company. It was called P10, the P10 network. And it was these stations linked all throughout the country. And that's right. I think the UK and stuff like that. But they were all on at the different times. Yeah, you know, the thing with Babylon five and all TV viewing, at least in the past was now we're in another whole era of binging and things like that. And we can go back and find something and bring it up and watch it now. Whereas, um, you know, it might be on in Salt Lake city at three o'clock in the afternoon and it's in, uh, uh, up in Connecticut on at, uh, one in the morning. Right. You know, I mean, it was on these different bizarre times and as a television audience, we were all trained by habit that we were on Monday night at eight o'clock. It was always going to be on this station. Okay. CBS, ABC, whatever. And NBC. Yeah. And uh, you had a consistency there. You knew what you were looking for. But then we didn't have that with Babylon 5. So despite even that, it started to take hold. And there was a fan base, almost a cult fan base that grew up. And you had these websites, you know, fan sites, right, chat rooms, and they'd be talking about these things and going on and on and on from all over the world. Now they were getting it, especially over the UK. We have an amazing audience in the UK. Oh, yeah. always will.
5: Yeah. And it's it's amazing, too, because the story had a couple of things. was Not only was it it was a season-long story arc for the full five years, rather than being mm-hmm. strictly episodic, even though you can watch the episodes individually, it was the first time where are, a, I, a TV yeah, show had yeah. done it that. It had both. You, know? kind of a,
0: you could do a standalone story and right. yet still have the arc passing through. And I think that influenced
5: yes. a lot of shows, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which would do the season-long mm-hmm. story arcs after mm-hmm. that, you know?
0: Well, uh, you know, Roger, that was kind of, that was the next phase that was coming. Yeah. Television's ever-changing, ever-changing with the technology that gets better and also with how we write things. Um, uh, like I say, actors today can, uh, which was unheard of in my day, can bl- uh, we do block shooting. We shoot out of sequence, such, like several episodes worth. Right. Which is what we're doing, what Seth is doing right now with uh, uh, the Orville. We shoot... Uh, You've got a big main set and you shoot sequences, which is tough for actors, sequences from the various episodes that are going to be on that set. It's actually very economic that way. Yeah. You know? Okay. So you light and you do this and light unless there's some different specific lighting, blah, blah, blah. Then you can do that. Say it's on the main bridge. So you do a bunch of the, you know, that would be like CNC for us, command and control. Right. Claudia and I were always up there. What if we did four episodes worth of scenes on that? Oh my right, God, yeah. I would have died at that <laughs> time because the amount of dialogue I had in there to learn every night. And that was another thing too, training. I had to train myself to learn these phenomenal lines because I always say JMS wrote the best material I ever did so far as an actor. Yeah. For an actor, you know what I'm saying?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: the, the, some of the most incredible speeches and uh, almost lyrical stuff too sometimes. Right. Um that were written in there Uh, maybe not necessarily uh, Sheridan saying him, but uh, like Jakar and I mean, Andreas Katsoulis and Peter Jurassic and and always had these amazing monologues and things. So, and our guest stars always did. Um, So he wrote amazing material, but you're right. We were leaving the standalone 22 on the air format. Right. Okay. We were starting to do, and now I think practically everything I, I, I don't watch a lot of uh, network television. I do occasionally. I like I like this new one uh, called Big Sky with the two oh, yes. human cops. Yeah, it is so crazy. <laughs> the stuff they're doing in on network television today compared to my day. Oh my god.
5: Yeah.
0: I you know it's amazing.
5: And what's cool too is that Babylon I mean, compared Five compared to we're... violence
0: and. Oh,
5: yeah. I was going to say what's cool, too, is Babylon 5 also had a lot of they would plant the seeds of storylines and, and things to come. And I just remember mm-hmm. that being mm-hmm. something like my yeah. friends and I would talk about incessantly to the point where I I definitely think that influenced the TV show Lost because that got fans talking to. Well, well, so and so said this and and this mm-hmm. this, you know, canister was sitting on the left and now it's on the right. You know, it means something. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so, and also my dear, beloved friend, Mira Furlan, yes. was on Lost. And, in fact, my That's wife right. and I just binged that over the uh, shutdown. Oh, yes, nice. yeah. We looked for things. I never got to watch it because I was working. Right. I never got to watch Lost. Yeah. But I, I do see what you're saying. And uh, also as a way to see Mira again without the, uh, you know, the uh, Mimbari look. Uh, yeah. Being in all that... Uh, Prosthetic makeup and everything yeah at the theater again and um you know it uh it's a testament that you know this this was a her particular story will always be with me because she was uh, she fled the brutal genocidal war in Bosnia yep.
3: she and
0: her husband yep. she was a major television star in former Yugoslavia and all that and uh wow. she was branded a traitor by some and I a hero by others and they were kind of a Romeo and Juliet story and um, fled and came through England and everything, uh, through Europe and England and uh, ultimately here to the United States So, and and the brilliance also you think of this, the, the Mimbari War and all that stuff was very real to her mm. and that sort of gave it that extra uh, gravitas that she gave it as an actress she had a major career over there in Europe she didn't you know that wow. she started, I, I a more courageous person I've never met, and I just want to say that about her in this. That uh, I loved her dearly as a friend. We always would go up to their house in dinner time, and, and we'd cook dinner. She'd have a big thing. Was always in their kitchen. She and her crazy wild director husband Goran, <laughs> they're wonderful, wonderful people, and um, it was a tragic loss this last February. Yes, yeah. I was up in Canada doing the first thing that I had done since the COVID. Uh, a Hallmark movie, which is coming on tomorrow night, by the way. Oh, nice! And uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I got a call in the middle of the night up there that, uh, uh, and it wasn't COVID. She had um, passed away from West Nile virus. She'd gotten stung by a mosquito. Oh, that's terrible. And lived in a coma for a long time. And I wish someone had no- I didn't know. I'm a little bitter about that, but maybe uh, it would have been tough. Yeah. But she was very beloved and uh missed so you know Babylon five has that and i can't i can't talk about the series without the loss that we suffered right. from it and right. um i don't know if the number is five or six now i'm not sure but there's only a few of us remaining yeah and uh, those ones that i mentioned i think i don't hear from jason carter much anymore but i do know he's among the living yeah <laughs> you know he uh, was the crazy guy he and i would every every once in a while relive the American Revolution. Uh, you know, <laughs> At lunch, we'd always get into some heated debate about something. It was great. That's I love Jason. You know, crazy man and a wonderful actor. And You know, we had some great actors. Jerry Doyle became one of my best yes. friends. And uh, after, even after we had finished, you know, pretty much everybody goes their, their, their way when a series, there's only a few relationships you maintain, most parts. And, um, mostly everybody goes their way, you know, on something else or what have you, and uh, that's the way it was, but uh we'd only see each other when someone had passed and had a test of a, a memorial or a funeral, right right and, um you know, it's been tough, it really has I mean uh, that's why it was hard for me personally to watch the series. I've only just now started to look at it again, yeah, and uh, out of fond memory. But it was very hard because it was too raw, you know. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it I don't really know that. And there's been some fans saying there's a curse on the show. I said, no, it's called real life. Right. You know, not everyone's going to live to be a hundred. Right. Yeah. You just got to know that, and when you're young, that's hard to uh, fathom—that you're not going to live to be an old, old, elderly person. And not one elderly person in that cast, by the way. I mean, it wasn't. So, I like think Richard Biggs who played her. Yeah,
5: Richard Biggs. Yeah,
0: he played wonderful our wonderful Dr. Franklin. Yeah, who I always felt was the character that was sort of the soul and conscience. Right. Of the humans, at least. Yeah. On on the thing, and uh, he was the youngest. And he was forty three. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, what were you at? Well, I
5: was just going to say that um, you know, you guys together as an ensemble really put together a legacy that I think will stands the test of time. It already has and you know, you've had a few yeah, secret I movies. I hope now
0: because of uh, HBO Max. Exactly. I thank those people. Yeah. Because from what I'm hearing uh, that uh, their ratings their, are uh, whatever they judge it by now has been so huge. They're flabbergasted in a way. Mm. because I think they kind of just put it on to do some filler, you know, during this COVID shutdown and everyone being locked in for a, you know, almost an entire year where we, there was a lot of content. We've been burning through a lot of content. People watching, binging became an all time high, right? Right. I mean, yeah. You know that. I mean, we've all been doing it, yeah. you know, uh, cause we are kind of, uh, uh, prisoners of it, you know, and, um, we sought entertainment and and relief from it all that's been going on and um i think they're kind of through it on you know yeah i think they're kind of surprised it's beating their original stuff yeah Uh, oh uh, i'm so proud of that not only the older fans but i think they're children and um you know uh, there's just a group of people that have heard about it Mm -hmm. and now they have a chance to to do it to
5: see it oh yeah my son is 20 and i i was telling him about it and he's hooked on it now watching it on hbo Max. how good is that yeah how great is that you know
0: so. that's excellent but um you know it's a, it's a crazy crazy world we're in and i'm so happy for the, the, that it's uh that the, my older stuff i guess scarecrow and mrs king has been streaming and uh, yeah i'm very good friends with uh, marty cove who plays uh crease uh, the sensei on oh yeah um, and uh, Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai, yeah. There, there is which has done an screaming hit. Yeah. And uh, Marty hadn't uh, uh, since those days when he was, you know, in the the Karate Kid films. I guess that is really another thing that has, um, you know, just resonated with a generation. They all knew this these movies and this incredible. Uh, I'm just throwing a shout out to him, Marty Cove. Uh, he's a good buddy. Nice. Um, He's back in Atlanta shooting right now. Um, uh, season, was it four? Three, I think. And, um, three, okay. And uh, so proud of it. because yeah. And his clever young producer writers who took this thing and reimagined it and, yeah. and in, turned it right on its head where the... The bad guys are like the most interesting yeah. guys you feel for, them. you know, Billy Zapka and uh, everything. Uh, this sort of lovable loser that just fails at everything he tries, right. yet you can't help being, um, you know, pulling for him. Yeah. So uh, and then he's not that nice a guy, you yeah. know, so it's, uh, it's crazy. But that's the stuff we're doing nowadays. That's so, cool. Yeah. Great. So great let's
5: stuff. talk about what you got going on uh, currently. You, I mean, you were on um, Cedar Cove with Andy McDowell. Yeah, and... I did.
0: I, I fell in with Hallmark. I've been doing their some of their things for years. Nice. Um, and off and on. And especially with the producer Larry Levinson when they were shot more here. He doesn't do them anymore. But, I've, you know, I did Cedar Cove. I've done, uh, I'm kind of doing the third and insta- uh, to my mind, I've got the third installment with uh, I played Danica McKellar's father who was an ex policeman and uh, detective and uh, kind of get drawn into the, the murder mystery and yes. this one in my own sort of trying to do some my old investigation skills again.
5: Nice. So
0: um, it's kind of fun. And she's, you, a, she's a sweetheart. And you were so, on Supergirl uh, as well? This is our third one. It's called the Matchmaker Mysteries. Matchmaker Mysteries, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, I think it Eight o'clock. I forget tomorrow night. But um, cool. Anyway, I've been doing those. I did one, two, and the three, and then I did Cedar Cove, and I did Super for yes ten episodes. Yep. I was always having to go to Vancouver, <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood North. They call it. You did, know.
5: Did you replace so. Brent Spiner on that? Was it? Was he supposed
0: to do the character? He was supposed to do it, but I believe there was some uh, uh, something personal happened, and oh, he okay. had to step back. And um, I guess he's fine. I mean, everything's yeah. good. No, but uh yeah i was next in line I, I went in and met on that and uh you know they're re- they're reimagining they're again reimagining right classic characters you yeah know, bringing it over to time that's what's going on right now that's a trend and it's good you know nice and i i had a ball doing that too i only got up there and did Couple little things each time I went up there, but it it added, added up to ten episodes. It was originally supposed to be do two or four or something like that, and I ended up doing ten. Yeah. So um that was fun.
5: Well, I was I was happy to see bit, you on Supergirl. It. So.
0: Yeah, I I you know then then again you always wish. Well, I always think we, I could have done more, but no, it it fit where it was supposed to fit. You got always. Right. You know, you right. can't have it all, Bruce. Okay. <laughs>
5: So <laughs> <laughs> Well Bruce, I, I I'm gonna bring this okay. to a close because I I've t- taken Alrighty. up a ton of your time. So um I do don't... you do you wanna tell our listeners where um they can find you
0: online? Yes, I, uh at online you can go to my uh on Facebook and Instagram at uh what am I I guess I'm Bruce Boxleitner, where my wife handles all that. Anyway, uh <laughs> <laughs> at at Bruce Boxleitner. And uh, there's, I did have a problem for a while there. Somebody else was coming out, going out there pretending to be me. Oh no! And uh, it was quite a fight trying to get rid of them. Wow. But I'm out, honey. I mean, I'm out there at Facebook uh, at Boxlight and Bruce. Right. My wife walked by and she heard me say that. <laughs> I'm at Boxlight and Bruce, and Instagram and uh, Facebook.
5: All right. and Twitter too, I believe, right?
0: Yeah. Yes. yeah. 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 Excellent. But I'm out Excellent. there. Well, and...
5: thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you, Roger. I know it was a it was a tug of war trying to get to, get to talk to each other, but we finally did we it. We finally so. did it. I hope you're happy with it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
5: Okay. And I, you know, I've yeah. I'd love to have you on the show again sometime. And also, I do another show where we talk about spaghetti westerns. So maybe you could come on sometime oh, and God. talk about westerns.
0: Oh my God, spaghetti westerns! You yeah. just strung out. It. Oh my, I just watched a great thing. Uh, I want to plug, That was on Netflix. It's called Sad Hill Unearthed. It's a documentary about some fans that went out and found the great cemetery from uh, the final sequence of The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Wow. And they resurrected it. They dug it up. Uh, I, it's on Netflix. I just watched it before calling you. Wow. I had tears in my eyes by the end of it.
5: That's I'm awesome. I'm a huge
0: Spaghetti Western fan. Oh, excellent. Going back to the first time I saw A Fistful of Dollars when I was a young um usher in the movie theater in one prospect illinois oh wow I, sat, I knew every line in that thing and every scene And i've always been that's Sergio Leone. when i was in rome two years ago had to go to chin studios and see where they shot all those great movies that's great so anyway we will do it again okay excellent thank you so much all for righty, being on the show friend,
5: all right take care you betcha thanks for having me bye-bye yep, bye Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to the incredible and fascinating Bruce Boxleitner. He's always been one of my favorites. If you get a chance, I highly recommend Babylon 5, which, as of this recording, is on HBO Max and Tron is on Disney+. Plus. Check out all the shows and films that Bruce has been in, past and present. It's truly a rewarding experience. Now remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash Death one to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from. And please leave us a great review if you enjoyed this episode so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially The Big Three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. The Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.